Hey, it's me, Rasan. I don't know, man. Huge hole in my, you know, yeah. <laughs> understanding. Just my fellow Americans. <laughs> Probably are you. As long as you're, whatever you're doing doesn't hurt anyone else, I don't care. Different perspective of what an interesting topic is than I would assume. This is Balance Exchange. Cronus is here, and we're back with Balance Exchange. And I'm here with... Papa Bear. And today we'll be talking a little bit about the difference between just wars and unjust wars. And we'll be basing that in a lot of um, external reference. So this is, what's kind of funny is this book was something that after, I think probably about, about 12 years in the Marine Corps, right? Was introduced to me as a part of one of my early political science classes. And I actually fell in love with the book I'm gonna use as our primary reference. And we're gonna talk a little bit about that. But um, it's amazing to think that not only as a citizen, and like as a member of any nation in the world, and but then also like as a member of the military and having been in as long as I was for like 12 years, I still had never heard of this concept of the difference between like a war that is justified and a war that is not, right? And so how you make those determinations and if that's even a real thing, right? Like, is that even any, is there any reason that something could be justified? So um, it's an interesting topic to talk about and I'm kind of excited for us to go over this today. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting for me, especially because, you know, I've been separated from the Marine Corps for a long mm. period of time. And so my my concepts of war and justifications for war mm. are probably not what people would normally think that a Marine would ever have. <laughs> so um, I, I my value of life has definitely risen post Marine Corps. Um, yeah. And this is going to be hopefully a, a really good conversation to have. Because especially right now, because the whole concept of war is like really it's in America, especially it's a very strange concept because there's been no war since the Civil War that have been fought on American soil. Really. I mean, we had, you know, attacks on America, but not actually a war. And so anytime we have a war uh, where America is involved, it's on foreign soil. So we don't see like all of these. The horrific sides of war. And so I think mm. that definitely kind of guides Americans as like a populace on what wars are just or not just because they don't see the actual cost of war. Yeah. Yeah. And I think so, like, because they're words, right. And, and one of the things, and I haven't really said this yet, actually, now that I think back through the episodes we've covered so far is one of my like favorite phrases, right. Is that words mean things, right. <laughs> if you use a word, and you use it because you think it will like generate this interest in what it is you're talking about. There's a reason that word is used and that word has a purpose and it means something just to use it to try to generate a response, like drives me insane. So I think maybe like mid this topic, one of the things we'll talk about is like a war on terrorism and like a war on drugs yeah, and like geez. a war on crime or violence. like, how do you create a war or like justify, right? Justify this war in the concepts we're talking about and using that word uh without without it really meaning what it is you mean on it so it, it, it's it's tough right and so as soon as you start using that word it, it, it shouldn't be used in a lot of those contexts and there's a different thing that you mean but because we do like you actually we had a little bit of a sidebar topic before we got started like because we often have to kind of talk about topics to the lowest denominator right we have to yeah. teach to the lowest denominator in the marine corps and like in most of our education systems We'll use a word like war to explain conflict, like, or to say, uh, you know, a, a pursuit of eliminating something like those are two very, very different things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's something that, you know, anytime I hear about, like when we talk, especially like recently, when we're talking about like the, 
the war on COVID. You know, we have to beat the invisible enemy. I'm just like, what the fuck are you even talking about? Like, you can't, these, what you're saying, does, you don't know what you're talking about. We talk about like a war on a thing that you literally, you're not going to war with it. Like, it, it doesn't, there's no war front against a virus. Like, there, there just isn't. And I don't like that Americans as a whole have been so desensitized to the actual word of war and not really understanding like what all goes with that because to me war means fucking vi- extreme violence yeah and for a purpose usually yeah yeah it's usually for like resources or political there's a couple other meanings too that i'm sure you're going to get into um yeah. in this podcast but it's just like people don't really understand what the word war means because it's been so desensitized through various means through even through our our leadership in america and it's it, to me it's very strange and it's sad it's really sad so the the primary reference I use, and, and, and it was funny because when we started talking, deciding we were going to talk about this topic, I, I like ran over to my bookshelf to grab my copy of um, the book I'm going to use as a primary reference and realized I have it in my office next to a bunch of other books on similar topics because I, in my position now, like I frequently have conversations like this with with either junior officers or, or some senior like enlisted folks to try to help help them understand more about what our organization's purpose is how how we're supposed to do things in order to make sure that you can walk away from this career and what it is that we do in the Marine Corps, um, knowing that you've done the right thing, right? Um, and so I went to I went to go grab that book because I, I love it, my copy of it too, which is, um, so the current version and the one we're going to talk about today is the fifth edition. And I have a copy of the fourth edition because wow. fifth edition came out in 2015 and I was doing classes in 2012, I think. So that version wasn't even out yet. But the original book was written in 1977. So, I mean, it's, a, it's an old book um, on concepts, right? And, and the, what we're going to be talking about is really like philosophy and like things about and uh, about how, how like, I mean, we're talking concepts to the point where the, the Stanford study I'm going to reference is under a category that they call Plato, which is like literally like really, really old school style. Let's break this down in a very fundamental philosophical way and like think about like almost the meta, the meta concept of think about how we're thinking. Like, like, why are you thinking a certain way? Why are you thinking about acting a certain way? And, and you have to think about your thinking and think about your acting. It's, it's super meta. It's like this, these deep philosophical, philosophical things. And, but I love my copy because like I'd gone through and I highlighted like certain paragraphs that I love, like as a very key reference. Um, so I'm going to have to go without those specific kind of like quick, quick flips. Let me flip through. Oh, there's that page that I really like to read from. Um, so I'm trying to do my best. So give me a little bit of room if I kind of, Stumble for a second to try to find what it is I wanted to say. No, it's all good. Um, real quick though, what we normally there's usually two things that we do um, hmm. in the beginning of all these podcasts, at least so far. Um, first of all, it's what we're drinking. Yeah. So you okay. had a story about what you're drinking. I wanted. To... <laughs> I do. So okay, two parts of this. One, this is in like a blown sea glass cup from Okinawa. So like this is Okinawan glass and it's varying in colors. You have like little imperfections in the bubbles in it i freaking love this glass but i'm like i'm trying really hard to drop a few pounds so i'm hitting the keto like super super heavy like trying to not nothing and like work hard and like every exercise i do is not about pace or speed or distance or anything it's it's time and heart rate to make sure i'm in fat burn and like really really driving the keto forward right so so i'm like i want to go grab beer right now and that is not okay no no yeah that'll definitely knock you out of keto out of ketosis so yeah yeah, so so right now in this in this is uh, just ice and then um, Tito's vodka, which zero carbs, zero calories, 
And then um, I added basically a Perrier, also nothing, carbonated water. <laughs> this is what I and do. And then <laughs> a, like a little bit of lemon juice yeah. because lemon juice also zero carbs. But like when you drink those fake flavored water things, like they they're flavored a little bit. There's really not much there. So the little bit of lemon juice like actually adds some citrus and some real flavor to it. So that's. <laughs> Not what I'm normally drinking, but it's what I need right now. No, I mean, like, when I, well, when I go, like, full keto, like, I, I drop pretty much all alcohol, except for, like, maybe whiskey. But, no, actually, I usually drop all alcohol. I try. Yeah. So, the thing is, when you're doing ketosis is that um, I used to be, I was keto for a long time. That's how I dropped a lot of weight. And yeah. if you're drinking, technically, you're not, it's not going to kick you out of ketosis, but you're not going to produce ketones while you're drinking. Stop. Yeah, for so whatever 10 hours i'm gonna do so. yeah because your, your body's like i need to process this poison basically out of your system first before i can start uh, making yeah. ketones it comes from your liver so your liver produces ketones and if you're drinking alcohol you know if you're not drinking beer or things with carbs then that's what happens but if you're doing keto, enough, like, so I, I found a study talking about drinking i was trying to trying to pick i'm like what can i drink because we do usually have a drink while we're talking um and it's talking about like you also, if you are in ketosis and like have been for more than just a couple of days, um, like you're not going to need to drink as much. Be careful because oh, yeah. <laughs> your liver is like mostly ready to process ketones. It's going to be like, what the heck? And it's going to have to do this big transition and you will get a little more messed up. So you don't need as many to, to be sitting happy and sitting comfortable and enjoying yourself. So, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So it's like, be careful. See, unfortunately, because you're active Marine, you don't have the yeah. option of using cannabis because that's the other way around of like, I need to relax. And there's no, um, there's no carbs I mean, in cannabis. Carbs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unless you're taking like an edible, like with, yeah, with yeah, yeah. Then yeah, you got carbs, but if you're going to smoke it, then there's, there's no carbs in smoke. So that, that's another way around it. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're, uh, that you're doing the, the keto thing. You did your research. You're a guy that seems like you do your research. So yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. So like, and I've, I've done, so I'm also intermittent fasting and I say intermittent, but like right now it's, it's like it's hardcore intermittent fasting. So every single day this week, and my plan is until I make the weight that I really want to hit for my target and the strength I want to get to is um, I, I will not not fast. That's a really bad way to say it, but I'm going to fast every weekday and then not fast on the weekends, but I'll still be focused on keto. So like my fasting is 20 hours basically. So I only eat from 1600 to 1800. Nice. Yeah, so 20 hour, 20 hour fast each day. So that's yeah. every day, Monday through Friday. So, I fast as well. Well, I fast every day. So, yeah, like the, the I think my, my minimum window is like, I start eating at two. Yeah, but usually it's like, yeah, usually it's like four, four or five, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it's like, especially when you're working out, it's it's hard. People ask me about, this can become like a dietitian thing, but people <laughs> ask me about like, oh, you know, what about keto? I'm like, yeah, I mean, you can, do, I, I did keto. I had like a lot of results, but if you're, if you have any, like the inkling of like, undisciplined in your body it's not going to work for you so just like i'll talk about it with some people but other people where i'm like you're probably not going to make it like i'm just like no just go use do something else because it's fucking hard <laughs> like, it, well, it's especially hard. and like you started to mention too like if you're working out at the same time so like fasting plus keto plus like working out hard like today yeah. it was a long hard workout and i told you when we started i was like i am freaking exhausted today like yeah i can just feel it like i didn't sleep well woke up early to do some stuff and then normal work day plus keto plus fasting plus like we i pushed pretty hard and I, but by like so i went distance and time but specifically staying heart rate too so like it was like no less than 30 minutes and i had to go at least three miles 
but then also can't go over 175 for a heart rate. Like I have to stay between like 150 oh, and 175. Yeah. So you you start trotting slow to to slow the heart rate down and then speed back up and. It yeah. was it was exhausting. It was hot in twenty nine pounds, middle of the day. Yeah, it's it's it's. I just remember like when I first started doing keto because there's there's hacks to it. Have you used beta hydroxybutyrate yet? No, I have a container. Yeah, that's a, it's a that's that's a good Not way to get around all this yeah. all this nonsense of feeling bad. <laughs> so it's it definitely helps. Yeah, so I did. Um, two things so one of the big ones i'm trying to stay as natural as possible and not bring too many too many like artificial like needing to like have a a powder to do it so one of the big things that can can make that work on its own too is the um so every bit of water i drink every day has lemon juice and salt in it and that helps you like generate some of those on your own so you don't get the fatigue and some of the other things that you get normally that i think the bhas are are also kind of trying to fix the same problem so yeah i think i'm gonna need to in two weeks and like start kicking that in to, to bring it on to because I'm, I'm gonna keep stepping it up until it all is done yeah i mean like when i when i first went keto um because i knew about this problem like the keto flu thing and so for yeah. me, i'm just like well you know i consider myself a badass so i was like you know what i heard the first three days is the worst so i'm just gonna get up as early as possible as soon as the gym opens like when i was still going to like a, a normal gym uh when <laughs> yeah and I'll, I'll get up at like i think like 4 30 in the morning and then i'll go to the gym and i would just do like 30 minutes of hard cardio just to empty the tank out just to get all the glucose out of my system but you feel like like the whole time i'm like doing this car it's only for like three days but i'm feeling like actually it was a week i felt like garbage the whole time like i was literally on the verge of throwing up the whole time well and like one of the things too and we probably do need to move on but the um like one of the key things to understand about it too, and I work and you work in primarily an intellectual profession. Like I use my brain for 90% of my work and like your brain only runs on glycogen. It needs sugars, right? And so if you don't eat carbs or sugars, if you go the whole day, like your body has to develop this long energy consuming process to generate glycogen so that your brain can function. So you feel foggy. You're like, every once in a while, you're like, but the fasting does help because it sharpens your brain too. Cause you kind of get into the hunter mindset where you're like, I need food. So it, it's a weird balancing act. Every once in a while, like I've noticed, I'm like, I feel really lethargic right now. But then an hour later, I'm like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, just really weird. Yeah. Once you get into like real, like deep ketosis for a while, um, are you using like a blood sample to like see if you're in ketosis? I'm not, I'm not testing anything. I'm just oh. reading really strict on what I eat. So yeah, I, I, I would recommend using a blood Thing, blood meter. I, I, just, I haven't gone so far as to order one. I know I need to, and this is going to sound stupid and maybe weird to those who don't have any idea what we're talking about. But like, <laughs> I'm honestly basically basing my ketosis on like what my sweat smells like. Oh yeah, no, <laughs> like definitely get the meter, man. <laughs> like I, yeah, it, it works though. Like I honestly, after three days working towards it, like I could clearly tell like that is a totally different smell to my sweat. Well, totally different. <laughs> so, as long as it still smells like that, I'm good. All right, all right. Well, I mean. If you can get the the blood meter, do yeah, it. I plan to because yeah. I'm gonna take this very seriously. But it's like I mean, the, this is literally the second week starting keto, okay. first week with fasting. So I've done I've done it before, but like this time, like post holiday, that's the day I'm starting. You know, uh, this is second week. So cool, cool. All right. Anyway, back to what we're drinking. I'm not drinking anything. I'm not keto right now because um, I'm I'm where I want to be for for nice. a while. Um, yeah holidays i'm drinking what is this called it's a single cut beer smiths is the name of the brewery 
And hmm. the name of the beer is Malef. Jesus Christ, I can't even read this. Malefluous? Malefluous. Life hmm. IPA. And it's actually a lower alcohol content. Usually I drink beers okay. over 8%. I'm opening a new tab. All right, hold on. What the hell does that word mean? You're looking at I know I know it. I, I know I feel like I understand. Malefluous? I'm pretty sure I'm Malef- saying that right. Sweet or musical? Pleasant to hear. Not not Maleficent. Malefluous. No, yeah. <laughs> Malefluous. Yeah. It, it's for a voice or for words. It's sweet or musical and pleasant to hear. The voice was mellifluous and smooth, according to dictionary.com. All right. Is that what my voice sounds like right now? Can I do some yeah. ASMR for all you motherfuckers? Yeah, I'm just beer, kidding. Your beer and your voice are <laughs> mellifluous. <laughs> Even though the beer's almost done. But yeah. Anyway, and we'll usually we do a disclaimer, but I think we're just going to cut it in because we already did one. We're just going to keep using it. So at this point in watching our videos, you may or may not know that I am an active duty United States Marine. And I've been doing this for 20 plus years. So I know that um, it's really important for me to make sure to get this out there. If it's your first time watching this, please stick around and make sure you understand the disclaimer. If you've watched a whole lot of our episodes so far, feel free to go ahead and jump ahead to the new content. Um, so what I need to talk about today is that I am not authorized and have no way of being approved to speak on behalf of the Marine Corps. So any opinion that I give or any concept that I discuss today is the position and the opinion of just me, myself, just a man who has a bachelor's degree in political science and a master's degree in leadership and organizational management and has spent my whole life looking at government structures and social contracts and how these things are supposed to work, what the philosophies and things behind them are, and read a lot of books on that kind of stuff. And It's definitely one of my personal and key passions. And so when you hear me maybe give a position or a concept on something, that is only my own position. I am not a public affairs officer for the Marine Corps. I am in no way giving what the Marine Corps' official position on anything would be. And honestly, a lot of the topics we're going to cover here, I'm pretty sure the Marine Corps doesn't have a particular position on. Um, so if you do have any questions about what the Marine Corps' policy on certain things could be, you can definitely research that and find those out um, or leave a comment or send us a message. Uh, if you can get a hold of us somehow, we can maybe be able to answer those questions for you. So with that said, let's get you back to this week's content. Yeah. Um, okay, so the first reference, and I kind of alluded to it, and I haven't given you the title yet. So it's a book by a guy named Michael Walzer. So um, there has been, because it was such a cornerstone in this concept, there have been, since 1977 when he wrote the first one, like lots and lots of other philosophers who have written like counterpoints and rebuttals and like, there are basically more books um, either contradicting or supporting his points than there are on on many, many other subjects, specifically just talking about his points, like not even saying in this general topic, uh, I also want to talk about something. And oh, by the way, his points, like literally just being like, Mike Walter's book, this is what's wrong with it. I'm going to write about it. And you're like, <laughs> so if it's that like, that controversial, you know, you know, there's, there's something real in there. That's like kind of really trying to generate this dialogue. Like, like we're trying to have, so um, it's Michael Walter and the book is called just and unjust wars. Right. Uh, it was written in 1977. And I think the title includes like a, a little subtitle thing too. Um, so where it says like, it's a moral argument um, with historical illustrations, which is one of my favorite parts of it, because basically he says, this is the concept. This is where, um, philosophy says it should go. And here are historical examples of wars that show that that is the way things should be done or are being done, you know? Um, 
some examples because I want to I wanted to really hit on like if you like history, and I know both of us do, and you like um, especially like military history. These are the, the conflicts specifically that he uses as examples. So um, he talks about uh, the Battle of Agincourt. Um, he he basically bases a whole section off of um, a bunch of arguments from that were written by Karl von Clausewitz. If you know who Clausewitz is, I do not. Um, so he talks about uh, General Sherman and his burning of Atlanta, basically, and like how how that falls into certain categories when things do or don't meet just just war requirements. Because um, there's there's two real general topics to this, and I'll I'll cover those in a second though. Um, he talks about Hitler's generals specifically. The generals, not Hitler, but his generals and how they uh, prosecuted their war. Uh, what else is in here? Uh, there's, there's so many. Uh, specifically, the Battle of Alsace-Lorraine during World War II. Uh, talks about Marx and his Franco-Prussian War. Czechoslovakia, Munich Principle. Uh, war of Spanish Secession, Six-Day War. Arguments from John Stuart Mill, the Hungarian Revolution, American War in Vietnam, which is a really big, like, really key example <laughs> yeah. in, in these stories. Talks about Cuba in 1898 and Bangladesh in 1971. I'm telling you, these are just, like, I'm just trying to read down his, like, the examples. Um, so the Allied policy, so not, not the Axis, but Allied's policies for prosecuting the war during World War II. Uh, the Korean War. Uh, talks about arguments from uh, Henry Sedgwick. I, I would have been able to tell you a while ago exactly what the relevance there was. I cannot remember who that individual is. Um, talks about submarine warfare, specifically Laconia affair, bombardments in Korea, which was a pretty big deal because a lot of times that goes into um, just in Bellum, which we'll, we'll cover, but it's it's how you do it, right? That's a big important part. Um, and then bombing of occupied France in Vermont raid. Uh, Siege of Jerusalem in 72 AD, Siege of Leningrad, British blockade of Germany, uh, American rules of engagement in Vietnam. We already talked about Vietnam a little bit. I know I'm reading down a list. This is a long list, but uh, I'm almost done. <laughs> uh, Russian populists, the IRA, and the Stern Gang, and how those things relate to each other, too, and relate to specifically having a political code applied to conflicts within like the terrorism spectrum yeah um Viet Cong and their like assassination campaign that they kind of went on uh battle of algiers i'm trying to hit just battles but there's a couple things i really wanted to talk about so uh chairman mao and the battle of like river hung so this is post post world two and then mao and him still running stuff and then some of his internal battles like to keep things together and then because then you really have to talk about it's a conflict internal, like civil wars, how the justification there goes too. Um, so there's there's a, a big thing talking about neutrality too, because that's a big part of this too. If you, you think one way or the other for justification or there is no justification for it, but then being neutral kind of falls into those categories in a discussion too. So there's this really interesting dialogue uh, from Churchill um, during World War II, specifically talking about Norwegian neutrality in World War II, and uh, it feeds pretty well into that conversation. It's kind of interesting. Plus, I, I mean, he's a very interesting character. I won't say, like, great, but, like, his ability to speak and, like, the way he talked about things was really interesting. It's definitely something that, like, captivates you. You know, you'd, like, want to keep listening. Yeah. Um, 
Hiroshima. Yeah, you know, like that, and it, it really, it's weird because it's listed specifically just Hiroshima, but like Hiroshima Nagasaki, like dropping nuclear weapons, like making that decision and its justification within warfare. Uh, almost done. Well, especially. Well, okay, go ahead, and then we'll talk about it. Nuremberg and Milai. I bet you've read about Milai or talked about Milai before. Well, it's been Jesus Christ a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. That's pretty much it. Okay. As far as actual specific conflicts that he uses as examples. And that's for me, what was like super captivating about reading this was not just like, here's the philosophies and here's the rules and highlight the things and pass the test. Right. Is that like his book told you what it is you're supposed to learn from these concepts or like how it is that we're supposed to apply them. But then then gave you like real examples that were like, I, I know that battle. I would love to hear more about it. And you kind of like read his, his interpretation of it when specifically talking about a specific portion of it. So it is absolutely not my intent to try to cover this whole entire goddamn book. It's, it's, <laughs> it's long. It's a big book. It's a textbook, right? So, I mean, this is a book you use to teach this kind of concept in a college course. So I'm not going to cover all of it, but I, I do want to hit on some key points, but I felt like a summary of just look at all these examples of like the really, really great usage of conflicts in history to show how 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 each of these concepts can really be applied in the real world that you could look back into. So yeah. I, I felt like that was worth spending a few minutes to kind of cover. I apologize for it taking so long. No, no, no. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's obviously battles there where it's like immediately where it comes up to where there there are responses that happen. Is I mean, especially if you look at like the bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, it's like the the response that America had to bombing the cities were to me like now that I'm well removed from like being an active marine. Um, it seems like rather extreme, you know, when, mm-hmm. uh, when Japan, you know, bombed Pearl, when they attacked Pearl Harbor, it was a military installation, mm-hmm. you know? And so they were attacking military assets. There was, as far as like civilians go, the count of civilian deaths were relatively low. Um, even though obviously they, they caught us, you know, with our, not with our pants down, but they didn't declare open war with us, which up until that point was like something you would normally do. You know, there was usually like, you wouldn't just attack somebody, you know, like that, like out of the blue, especially when we're not involved in the conflict at all. You know, you would think so. Well, right? I mean, so like, we expect that kind of as civilized societies, but there's yeah. a big part of just ad bellum as one of the justifications for war is being attacked unprovoked by someone else. Right. So yeah, pretty much any of us today would say, like maybe like the, the the stigma around stand your ground right now makes it seem like it's a little excessive. It goes a little crazy sometimes, but like no one would argue that if, if someone came in through your property or into your territory, into your society, the people that you have agreed to be a group together and, and actually started like attacking people that it's okay to defend yourself against them. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. But it's also, it's like, what is the extent of your defense? It's like, is, is your defense that is the extent of your defense killing the person that, you know, encroached upon your property and endangered your life? Yeah. I mean, that's justified, right? Like if, if you think your life is in danger and the person that's perpetrating the danger, I think you're justified. But if you then kill the person that, you know, that you thought you were in danger from and then kill his whole family, it's like, Oh, well, you know, like that gets a little, a little fucking not even gray area to me. It's like that's, that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> and like caveat on even the first part of that. So like you mentioned in danger, but like so recently, and this is this is maybe a shock to people who like 
this is a United States Marine Chief Warrant Officer who's been doing this thing for 20 years. I literally, here in California, of all places, have finally owned and licensed my first firearm of my own. Nice. Right? Uh, every other time, I've always just used other people's guns. There's yeah. People I hang out with, there's more than enough guns around. So I was able to just go shoot or or go hunting with someone else's rifles. I've never had a need to. Plus, like, I move every three years, and dealing with, like, transporting weapons is always an yeah. issue. Um, but I felt like it was worth it in this location to have a home defense weapon. So got a shotgun and have like, you know, a nice cool, actually, I don't know if I sent you the video, I'll send it to you later or we can clip it in right here or whatever, but got one of those really like really nice, super high speed, like quick access types of safe storage for it. Nice. Um, I told, I told uh, Enrique, a friend of ours, like that. Um, His birthday was yesterday, wasn't it? Turn 43? Uh, maybe two days ago now. Yeah, something like maybe that. Yeah. yeah, told him, told him kind of late today, happy birthday. <laughs> We went PT. We ran at lunch, but um, so I told him like I tested it out, and like right now, from bed to weapon out on off safe at hallway door, ready to defend the house, eight seconds. It's not bad. It's pretty freaking good. Yeah. Pretty freaking good. <laughs> I was like, that's okay. So he, his concern was there's like a kind of a safety mechanism to it. He's like, how do you know how to do that in the dark? Because it, it is kind of complicated. I was like, oh no no no, I prepped that before going to bed. So that there's like one thing to push and I'm ready. And then I just put it back in the morning if I'm done. So, nice. but, but my, my point on that was if the person coming in has a baseball bat, am I really justified to shoot him in the face with a shotgun? I, that's kind of where we have to go with this conversation because it's, yeah. it's proportionality of the conflict, right? That's, it's a really small scale version of the same thing we're going to kind of cover when we talk about conflicts between nations and things like that. That is because a, that's or. a can of worms that actually, you know, America deals with to this day when it comes to, you know, use actually, well, mainly I'm just going to say America because this is where I fucking live, um, mm. where, where it's like use of force, you know, yeah. um, if you think your life is actually in danger, but this is the problem yeah. though, is that if somebody with a, a baseball bat or a, you know, or just somebody that thinks if you think they're going to kick your ass, that's not even armed at all in, in certain parts of America, like if you're getting beat up you're justified into killing the person. And I'm just like, I don't know. Like to me, it's just like, listen, I know how to defend myself. So it's just like, if somebody's going to kick my ass, like, I mean, first of all, good luck. Second of all, like, I don't, especially if you start something, which is, I mean, we can get into the whole, I forget the guy's fucking name, but it's the, the guy that killed Trevor Martin. I, I don't even want to say his name, but it's like, if you follow somebody and confront them, and you get your ass kicked by confronting them. Are you justified in killing them? Nope. Yeah, I'm, in my mind, in most rational people's mind, is is no, because you should not be confronting somebody and then things get out of hand, and then you decide to to end it with a firearm. That that yeah. should never be. You, vigilantism should not be promoted in America. Um, I don't understand why people like a lot of people in America thought that the guy was justified in, in killing that kid, but it's just like, you, you can't stalk somebody and confront them or you shouldn't be able to just talk. Cause obviously you got away with it to stalk them and confront them and then kill them. It's like, yeah, you got your ass kicked, but I mean, an ass kicking is just, you know, the kid probably wasn't going to kill you. So hindsight being 2020, right? Like we know he had no firearm. So assume, assume both people in that situation, neither one of them had a firearm. Yeah. Either one of them with just their fists after like me looking at the characters involved in this situation neither one of them are going to be kill each other yeah with just like punches 
like you're not so the situation becomes different if it's like someone who is six eight and and 350 pounds and all muscle and like a little like okay you might break this person's face with just punching them so then you you can feel justified like i need something to bring these things back to balance where the conflict between us needs to be squared so like i need some other kind of weapon or something else to defend myself to make this even a fair fight but you also um, wouldn't start the fight you know what i mean in a situation <laughs> I noticed I did not even talk about that part because yeah. if you start the conflict, it is in that other person's 100% in their rights to absolutely defend themselves with proportionality. Yeah. And so that's where it starts to be weird because, like, if you just start a fight with someone, they have every right to fight with you. Neither of you have a right to shoot each other until someone else brings out the gun and then the other person can defend themselves with a gun too. So as soon as you escalate, things should and are justified to be continued to be escalated. Like, and that's what that's why all of this stuff gets to be a really weird thing is you mentioned it when we first started is like you talk about resources or like the political reasons for for that first strike piece where you're yeah. like where does that first attack happen that then generates all of the follow-on justifications and potential escalations and most of the time and and in almost every historical example which is a big part of why like some of the other studies have like poked holes in his theories is that you get like ad hoc and, and post um, I'm trying to think of the right legal term, but it's where like the, you get post justification of why it was that you even made that first initial attack. It starts to sound justified uh, and in yeah. almost every case it's there. Right. But you're like, but, the, but no one knew that. And you didn't say that. And it wasn't violence. You know, it was, it was like protecting your people. It's, it's always down to like a, this very gray area stuff when you look at that initial strike that maybe started a conflict. Um, I mean, Franz Ferdinand is like one of the key examples, like, like World War One. you're like, why did that assassination happen? There's not a good answer for it. Well, <laughs> but then also every trickle down effect, like also there's not a really good answer for, but it was like, it was like powder keg just ready to go. And that was just the thing that kind of lit it off. But so much of it is you're like, you look at the real examples and like, you can find quotes from people and it's like, none of that is like really, really 100%. Like you could look at it and go, yeah, without a doubt, absolutely justified, continue going. But yeah. it's kind of creepy. I mean, even the Franz Ferdinand thing, right? He, he, it, was, it, was, it was a failed assassination attempt. And then one of the guys got away. If I remember this correctly, it's been a while since I read up on this. But like one of the people that was supposed to originally assassinate him saw him later on in the day and then killed him, right? Oh, geez. I don't even know that level of detail. I only focused on the like... I never saw that story, so that's yeah. It was mostly about the actual assassination, and then you know all the all the after effects, and then stories as to why that person was supposed to do that. Um, in any of those cases, it's like I never heard about it being a two attempt a two attempt success. Basically. I'm pretty sure that was it. I, I'll have to like look it up right now, but I'm pretty sure um, the original attempt was not. Um, it was failed because someone was supposed to. It was supposed to be like a group of people, and then it was mm. a failed attempt because they took like a wrong street or some shit like that. And then later on, like the guy was, he was sitting at a cafe and then he saw Franz Ferdinand. He was like, well, if he's right fucking there. So then he shot him. So yeah. It's like, it's like, we're supposed to meet, we're supposed to meet Julius Caesar on the, the steps of the Senate. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, shoot. I was at the, I was at the voting booths. I was in the wrong spot. Yeah. It's, I, I got, I'm looking it up, but I'm, I'm pretty sure what I said is correct. But that, that's what I remember. Like his assassination, it, it took, it was two times. And the first time it was just like, they totally missed the guy. And then, like, just the guy was in the cafe. Yeah. 
like tried and missed, but just went to the wrong spot. Well, I think he took the route of the, the that he was taking to go somewhere. Um, it, it wasn't on the route of like the assassination attempt, and so mm-hmm. it was like, oh, I guess you know, fuck it. And then some of the people that were in the assassination plot were at a cafe, and then he passed yeah. by. And but uh, I have to look it up. I'm gonna I'm gonna look it up right now as I'm speaking. Yeah. So, yeah. so I do have. Um, let's see here. Sorry, my notes slipped slipped out later. So I do have a copy of it up here. So while we discuss a little, I'm gonna go ahead and share this actually, just so we sure. can actually let me pull up what I want to talk about first. Um, so there are two two basic like phrases you use in talking about just and unjust uh, warfare. Um, they're Latin phrases. So you say just just ad bellum. So it's J U S A D bellum, and so the bellum is basically war. So you're talking about B-E-L-L-U-M, right? So there's just ad bellum, and then there's just in bellum. So just ad bellum is basically talking about justification to start a war, right? So like, is the war itself and its conflict and the whole reason for you in doing it justified? So is this a conflict that has a purpose that we could all say that makes sense? And usually it's the the most obvious one is the one we talked about earlier, where it's always justified, which is when you're like defending your people, right? So we start a, we, we, start the war because someone else attacked us and we are defending ourselves to make sure that we protect our people. So then just in bellum is, is justified um, actions within the conflict. So there's, there's kind of two levels to talking about justification within war, not just is the war itself and having a conflict even justified, but like, is your behavior in the war also a, at, you know, a moral and upright and justified behavior. Um, and that's where things really start getting con- like conflicted. Most people can kind of put a couple categories together and say, this is justified to start a war and this is not justified to start a war. But then what's proper behavior, Geneva conventions versus this versus that, do people follow them? Is there any way to really say that anything is okay or not okay when you're in a fight for your life, right? It's, it starts it starts getting weird. So there's kind of like two groups on that piece of it. And I feel like that's the cooler topic to talk about. Um, so we'll hit the first one because it's a little easier. Um, so justification for a war. I want to find that. Go to just add bellum real quick. Move my notes. Did you find what you're looking for? Yeah, I, I was actually reading it. I was trying to listen to you and read it at the same time. But yeah, it definitely was botched at the very beginning. And so okay. I was trying to go down like the rest. But yeah, it was supposed to be like... It's supposed to be a bomb that's supposed to kill him in like his car or some shit like that. Hmm. And then that didn't happen. It was some kid that was like 17 years old. Um, that was armed with a pistol and a bomb, and he witnessed a failure. And then, yeah, it was. I'm trying to read through the whole thing right now, but it's like it was definitely a botch attempt the first time, and they got lucky on the second time. So like, yeah, because it was so in a bomb too, right? So talking about that, like. It's a little easier to be ambiguous oh, as to... Hold on. I can read part of it right now yeah. uh, about the botch attempt. So at they were they were in a car. So they, they, they were at the right location. And then somebody hurled a grenade directly towards the Arch, Archduke's car. But the driver, the driver saw it and then accelerated away. And the bomb um, bounced and then folded back of the convertible cover and rolled into the seat. And there's a 10 second delay and it exploded, but it wasn't 
they didn't kill Archie Ferdinand. Wow. So Survived a grenade going off inside the car. Yeah. So it was just like, it was like a crazy thing that happened. They saw him like later on the same day. People are part of the same conspiracy to kill him. And then they killed him. So it was just like, it was crazy, like a, a series of events that happened. Yeah. They were very serious about being able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> wanted to make sure they had. Uh, so I'm trying to find, because again, I normally have this stuff highlighted. I think it's here. You've reached the page that's unavailable. Darn it. So I am looking at like what I thought was a free copy of pretty much the whole book. Anything I've looked at? It was not um, free. Google, Google Books. <laughs> I was about to just buy it on Amazon, like a digital version, so we could talk about it. But then I was like, oh, here's a totally free version. I was like, maybe it's just old enough of a book. But um, darn it. I can't see that page. Um, yeah, because I wanted to talk a little more in detail and kind of show you specifically like paragraphs in it, talking about just ad bellum. Um, because uh, what I want to hit for sure is like a couple of the key concepts. So as I already said, like the, the most obvious one where you can say, yes, I, I agree that it's a justified war, right? Is one where you're attacked and you then say, okay, we're at war now because you attacked us and initiate conflict with them because you are defending yourself and responding to external attack on yourself, right? So those are the ones, if you look through history, and there are historical examples in his in his book that talk specifically about it, pretty much everybody agrees like that's fully justified. I totally understand why those two countries went to war, uh, because those people attacked them. So then it's a two-part thing, right? Because the country being attacked is justified for continuing the conflict, where the first country who attacked for reasons maybe unknown is not justified. They should not have done that, right? Yeah, well, it depends. Yes, but it depends on what they're attacking them for. How? What do you feel like? like well, why I mean, would that be a- there would be certain things that were like, if another country didn't necessarily declare war on somebody, but they were doing things to a country mm-hmm. that were kind of like, uh, we'll take the example of like raiding the country or, you know, stealing resources or putting their um population into slavery shit like that um those would be justifications of war even though the the original country that were perpetrating the actual atrocities didn't actually declare war but they were doing things that i would consider um justifiable to to do war against them yeah Yeah, to retaliate so in the in the the defense argument um all of those count right they are they are attacks from another group against your group whether nate you call it like a country a nation a state or whatever because throughout history we've we've called them different things sorry there was a noise it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so in, in any of those cases and, and and i guess so to clarify something else so like you keep mentioning um like that a country declares war before they make an attack but, um, yeah, it's rarely the case, though. Yeah, <laughs> is that, that's probably probably rarely the case. Very, very rarely does yeah. that ever happen. Usually, it's the like the first attack. Yeah, surprise <laughs> causes the country being attacked to like. Okay, well, I'm going to declare war on them since they just attacked Pearl Harbor, right? For as a primary example. Um. So that's that's when that's why I was like, it, it doesn't happen very often. So it's usually those those other things you you use as the like. Look at look at what they're doing to us. We're going to declare war on them and we are justified because they're, like you said, coming into our space, our territory, 
taking our people away for slavery or raiding specific villages, killing people and taking their stuff. Uh, the resources thing becomes interesting because it might be like, is that designated for sure as your territory? Did that other neighbor know that they weren't supposed to go that far? Was it like the gray area territories, depending on how far back you go? Pretty, pretty, pretty solid where the lines are right now. Um, but I mean, in a third world country, do you know where the United States puts a line on a map between this hill and that village? And it's kind of hard. So it would have to be, a, that would be one where it starts getting gray, like resources specifically. Yeah. Because it, to me, to me, it kind of goes to the argument. You'll see the, the, the memes out there talking uh, like, if you kill someone who's breaking into your house to steal your stuff, you value your items more than a person's life. You seen that one? Yes, but it's also you don't know what the fuck that person's gonna do that breaks into your house. That's the other part yeah. of the argument. Yeah. <laughs> the door, like grab a a vase sitting right there and like walk out the door. Why well, that's why you came in the house. Okay, I, I guess that makes sense. Yeah. But I don't know that when you come in. <laughs> like you're in my house. My daughter's in the room right over there. Yeah. That's what I'm concerned with. Like what am I I have to protect us because you've crossed this line that's not that gray. Yeah, well, so, it, well, what's I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine uh, weeks, months back. Jesus Christ, it's probably pre-COVID, um, and she does my my girlfriend's hair, my daughter's hair, and I knew we went to high school together. She's a really, really cool person, and we we're talking about like the value of of things over people, and she's like way more on the hippie spectrum than I am, even though I'm sort of on the hippie spectrum, sort of. Um, I am too. Yeah, but it's just like if somebody were to steal like things, like I, I can replace things. Yeah, you know what I mean, like easily. But if you're breaking into my home and I don't know what the fuck you're gonna do, then yeah, I'm gonna defend my home. But it's also I'm protecting that the lives in my home because I don't know if you're gonna try to harm us. And so I, yeah. I, I I would be very quick to remove you from the equation of being able to harm any of us. So I just thought of like a really clear example in my head at least of like the line between the two so say someone you haven't been to my house but like my property is kind of weird so there's a super steep hill down to our house so it's kind of hard to get down here anyways so if you go through the effort of coming down this freaking crazy ass driveway hill right and are outside my house and stealing my car am i justified to come outside of my house where you're clearly just stealing my car to shoot you with a shot yeah no it's insurance no in the car. I don't, I don't, <laughs> yeah like me in in most of these categories and his arguments generally go this way too where there has to be that that actual risk of life right and that's where i think we both agree where if you're in my house i i can't know that you don't have that intent already otherwise why'd you come in here so so the sword hanging on the wall right here or the axe that's next to my bed might be a better example if you don't necessarily have a firearm I don't know that coming out of my bedroom. So, well, it, well gonna... this is what gets weird too, because somebody's I, I understand people are going to listen to this. They're going to be on various spectrums of mental sure. thoughts. And so, if you saw somebody trying to steal your car, what would you do? Would you try? You at least at minimum probably try to stop them from stealing your property, right? But then it's like, how far would you go to stop them? And that's mm-hmm. where the escalation things comes in. So, but you don't know. That's that's the problem. And it depends on how prepared you are for it too. And it's yeah. unfair to think that everybody's going to feel the same way as I am about it because I'll go out. I'll try to, I would try to stop them, but I also wouldn't try to get so aggressive that I potentially risk my own life when I have insurance on the car. Yeah. I can call the police and like, I can recover my losses 
if I don't get hurt, right? But if I go out there and I get shot because I'm being too aggressive about trying to get my car back from this person, I can't, I can't do anything for my family other than provide them with my SGLI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what folks don't think about. It's, you know, and even for me, like if, if things came down to like real violence, um, my first go-to, I mean, right now I don't own any firearms. I used to, but I don't right now, but I'm, I'm going to, I have to buy another one sometime this year. Cause America's getting a little fucking sketch right now. Let me be honest. All right. It's been sketch for a minute, but, um, if I have to get in like a physical confrontation, I'm not even trying to hit somebody. I'm just trying to like disable you. Um, so you can live, you know, whatever life you might have, but it's like, but I'm equipped to do that, you know, cause I know jujitsu, I'm a purple belt in jujitsu. So I, I can easily disable the average person, even if they're bigger than me, I can easily disable them. But I think most people go in, they're like, oh, I'm going to go fuck them up, blah, blah, blah. They don't understand the actual, um, the cost of violence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they, they don't, because they're not, they're not used to it. Well, and and I think, I think what you're alluding to too, and, and it's not clear to those people, is it's twofold. It's not just the cost of the person you're putting violence towards you pay a cost too, yes. right? depending on how far that violence goes. Yeah. If you, like you said, even if it's just injury, if you injure that person for life and they no longer can use their left leg, like get slammed in a door, break the leg, and then that knee never recovers. Like that will mess with you forever. Like you will know, like, even though they made a mistake and who knows what their reasons were for trying to steal your car and our, you know, our man in a cave story we're coming up with here. Um, I don't know the reasons they were here to do it. And it might've been that they're trying to feed their family by selling the car off afterwards, yes. you know? And, and you now not only like obviously foiled their attempt to actually feed their kids, but like also smashed their leg in the freaking door and ran it over with the car or whatever. And now they are going to have no way to be able to do that in the future. So like that will, if you end up going to court and doing all the other things and getting the whole story, like that violence that you decided to, to prosecute is going to stick with you. So the, the cost that you're going to pay in your own like mind and psyche and everything else has to be worth what it is that could be lost. Right. Yeah. I think most folks that doesn't even come into their mind. They don't think that the vast majority of crimes in America are crimes because people just don't have enough resources, yeah. you know, and it's just like the person that's going to steal your car, they're not stealing your car because, you know, they want your car. They, they're still in your car because they don't have fucking resources. You know what I mean? And, and they need resources. And their resources might be through having your car for either transport or to sell your car to get re, to get resources. You know, and not enough people really seem to understand that side of it. But I understand this is like a way more um, complicated concept to understand. I understand that people in like the various walks of life, they don't have the, the mental cycles to even understand these things. But it's like at some point, but that's even part of the same issue. It's like you're already in this cycle of um, where you can't even take time to understand that there's poor people and people that have been fucked over, you know, and that need resources. But our society has deemed them not worthy to get these resources and therefore they needed to to take resources. And that that can be used for the world. So we're going to get back to like the actual original concept when we talk about wars. Um, yeah, so this place is, yeah, it's like they don't have the resources to do anything. So they might happen to lash out to get resources, you know. 
Yeah, and so that becomes, in my in my opinion, and it's not necessarily outlined in Walter's book, but there's a pretty good bit in it on the the counterpoints, like the people who argued against his concepts because he didn't cover that particular piece of it too. But in in my mind, that becomes a failure of diplomacy too, where yeah. war war is intended as an extension of political power where you're not able to accomplish your goals through every other means that you could have tried politically to accomplish what it is that you need. So you resort to violence because there's no other option. So like in the country, because we're now talking nation states and countries level, like they're falling short on resources and need it. And their nearby neighbor who they could potentially start a conflict with has it. In many historical cases, there was like no effort to like say, hey, can we figure out a way that we can share these resources? We'll pay you with this that we have. Um, very little diplomacy happens in a lot of those cases. And so it, it's not wrong to say that it's a failure of diplomacy, which is the step before it, that leads to conflict a lot of times. So then that's why a lot of times you'll feel, you'll find people who are um, very much on one side where they say there is no justified reason, right? There is no reason to go to war because you should try harder to do those other things. You clearly just didn't try hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that's easy to that's like that's easy to say. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? It's easy to say. It's like uh there's certain times where it's like, you know, the battered wife has to fuck up the husband. You know what I mean? And people like you, you could never say there's there's literally no reason for violence. It you can say yeah. that if we weren't human beings and we're all perfect, you know, and and we never didn't have, you know, a bad cell in our bodies but this you know we're all humans we're, we're fallow people and there are things that we will do that we know are going to um disparage or put other humans in, in disadvantages and we all know this we, we anybody that's listening to this podcast you've done it i've done it where you fuck somebody over and you and you know you did it but hopefully you grew up enough to know that hey let's not do that again you know let's uh let's talk more let's figure out my own issues more but when it comes to like your feet to the fire, when you literally are a, a nation leader and people are looking to you for leadership, the easiest thing to do is like the us versus them, which is like, Jesus Christ, we did it again. <laughs> I wrote it down. I wrote it down. I was yeah. Like, yeah. I'm going to say it. It's not versus them. Yeah. We do it in America right now. I mean, look what just happened last week, you know, with the, yeah. the, the failed insurrection, like it's us versus them. Because, because people were advocating for this like it's us versus them content which we talk about a lot on here right now um and i, and I wrote it down too so I, i'm gonna sidebar real quick um abundance versus what's the word we've said scarcity scarcity like it was basically what you talked about but i don't think we used the word and that that specifically is that other part of it where those with right and those without are going to be in conflict which also kind of comes into the us versus them so it's really I would say abundance versus scarcity, scarcity, abundance versus scarcity is like a version of us versus them. Yeah. Where it, it, it constantly translates between those two. Um, I think it's just the most prevalent one. <laughs> it's the most obvious one. It's the one that we deal with a lot. Like it's the most common one, abundance versus scarcity. Like you said, in those examples, we don't have something in our country. Those people over there have it. Let's just, let's just go take it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when, when there might be other options, but maybe, maybe we don't even speak the same damn language, you know? <laughs> like, so, so how am I supposed to go talk to them if we don't even speak the same language? 
Well, that's that's one of the crazy things about you know being human is that we are so used to using the the, the language of violence is very it. You don't even need a translator. You know what I mean? Like everybody understands violence, and and if if I can commit uh, much more horrific violence than you can, then I'm right. And I guess what I'm not only right, but I get to say how I get to write in the history books of how you were wrong. <laughs> so because I can use my violence and various other means to uh, to get my point across. And if you lost and died, then nobody even know what your society was even like. So winners write history, right? Yeah, they really do. Um, except for now it's kind of, have you noticed like there's been like kind of like a small, it's been probably insignificant for like most Americans, but there's been to me a monumental shift on information on yeah. like the winners and losers, especially like when it comes to like social movements in America. Cause before I had no idea about like all these issues that America had like post, um, like slavery days. And then like now, like all these stuff comes cause things are written. They just, mm-hmm. they were not, they weren't really that public. It, yeah, so so what I would say on this topic is is that not only is like the future clearly not going to be so easily written by the victors, yeah, um, that in the information age where we are right now, even prior histories written by victors are being disassembled by the ability to access all of this knowledge and share it with everyone and go like, was it really that way? Yeah, like, did did Washington really cut down and change me? No. But it was a good story, and it showed you, like, his character, and it helped build this American legacy history stuff we talked about, right? Where we're trying to create this history where we all feel like one country back when that stuff was written to try to bring everyone together. And and we're now, because of the information age and the ability to kind of disassemble some of that stuff, kind of breaking some of that down, too, though. It's not bad. It's just there's other pieces of it that need to be played too so that we do still feel like a unified people um so that we could still be us versus them i mean how else are we supposed to do this yeah should all we should all just get on the it's hard i mean the those versus them thing usually comes down to like it's mostly cultures you know they 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 try to like break down even when when i talk about cultures it even comes on a political level at this point because politics have come into like the cultural level as far as i'm concerned at this point because you can clearly, for like most cultures in America, you can draw a line on like what you can assume their political party is going to be based on their culture. So if I say like, if somebody, if if I tell you, who do you think this black man voted for in the last election? It probably wasn't President Trump, right? It probably was Joe Biden, even though I have problems with Joe Biden. But um, and if you, you can do that through like any other sort of, you know, whatever. But it's it's mostly like a cultural thing of like where people just don't want to understand that other culture, which is where we get into when you get to see multiple cultures around you growing up, you're probably much more well adjusted as a as a human being. Yeah, and, and, and I agree, and I think that's part of where I'm ahead of a lot of people where like I, I grew up in a very big melting pot kind of area like they use that term in the united states you know where i was very easily exposed to all of the different cultures and races and so for me like what a lot of people experience in the marine corps of like this first exposure to other groups and like learning a lot of stuff from each other and all being treated like equally like trash um <laughs> you learn you learn that like oh okay there's a lot of differences between us but they don't really matter 
when it comes to the big picture of being humans and being a part of a group together, right? And taking care of, and in our example, like accomplishing your mission and like making sure you get shit done. So for me, that was like, it's not a new thing. I totally knew that already. But for a lot of people, that was really new. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of guys like that. It's a funny story, uh, and if you don't mind, an anecdote. Um, so my mom was dating this guy when I was little, and he grew up in like a super all-white town, like tiny little town, all white people. And so the first time they went outside of their town, like to go shopping somewhere outside of town, went somewhere else, he was a little kid. He tells this story, and he was like, it was really weird, but we grew up, and again, this is now in that town, which is super, this is Portland, Oregon. So there's people, like all culture, everybody everywhere. Um, so he, he like goes to this other town to go shopping and a, a black man like walks he's like <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've never seen a person that looked different than everyone else in our town and it was just very shocking so he asked he's like how's that ha-? like what what happened to that person because <laughs> yeah. to them he has no other exposure he was like eight years old by this point like never even went shopping in That's another crazy. town where there were not white people so it's yeah it's and I was like, I could imagine that would make it difficult for you to understand that if you encounter someone new from a new culture, like you may just need to ask some questions and figure out what you guys have in common and what's different and not need to have all these other conflicts. But yeah, yeah sorry. Sorry. It was like a weird story, but no, no, it's not, it's not a weird story. It's, it's actually, it's a good story because I think that, you know, if we took the time to understand each other as humans, um, we'd be much better off. Like one of my best friends in the Marine Corps, his name was a uh, hat one. And he grew up in Rochester, Washington, which is a very small town in Washington. And I was literally, I was his first black friend. Yeah. Because like he was. I I graduated from high school in Washington. I have no idea where that town is. Yeah. It's it's like a little bit. It's like, what, 25 or 30 miles south of uh, Olympia. Middle of fucking nowhere. Okay. Long highway. Yeah. So I've been to his place a bunch of times. Um, I'm sure I've passed it. I just. Don't remember the name. <laughs> yeah, I probably have. Like, I've been to his place. Uh, well, his parents' place, not his place. A bunch of times mm-hmm. when we're in the Marine Corps. Um, but yeah, I was his first black friend. And I guess in his high school, he only had one black student there. And I was just like, what the... F- what? <laughs> I was just like, how do you only have one person of color, like, in your whole school? Like, it was so odd to me. Because, you know, I grew up in the Bay Area of California. And we have everybody. Everybody yeah. is here. So, yeah, I think that just getting to know each other... Um, just like on a cultural level, like if you get exposed to it, it's you're no longer like the, like the odd person or like the, you don't understand them. Like if you just grow up with them, it's like, it becomes, no, it's normalized, but it's easy for you to like do the whole us versus them thing with a culture you have no idea about, you know, like if, if somebody like doesn't like somebody that's Indian, I'm just like, or any other ethnic, just name an ethnic group. It doesn't matter to me, but it's like, have you ever talked to any of them? Like at He's all? Yeah, it's usually a, a no. They probably never even met them. You know, it's just like, it's a, or or when they met them, it was probably like not a good a good first impression, which is fine. But you can't give a uh, a bad first impression for a single person and apply it to an entire group. I mean, that literally defines. Yeah. Um, um, you talk about like whole group of people. You can't apply one person's experience to that. Yeah, absolutely. But people yeah. do it. You know, all the time. I'm just like. There's plenty of people on any fucking cultural level that I don't fucking like, but it's not because of the way, not because of their culture, it's because they're fucking assholes. You know yeah. what I mean? But it's just that individual person. Yeah, and it's a tough line to 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 walk. Where if that was your only ever exposure, 
how do you not know that that's not how all of these people I've never met before are? So you, you have to then put the effort in, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I guess I need to put some effort in and find some people. And a lot of people aren't willing to put that effort in. Well, it's, all, it's not even just like they, they, they don't have time to put the effort in. It's that they, the effort, the ability to do that may not even exist depending on where they live. Well, and depending on their level of abundance or scarcity. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> so, you can't, you can't travel back, somewhere. Yeah. And y'all are going to notice that we do this a lot, but uh, we kind of, it's kind of become an inside joke a little bit now. But so, like, my, my, my wife teaches in an area that's a pretty, pretty poor area. And it's frustrating as a teacher to have a lot of students, like, not apply themselves and not put a lot of time in. But then she, she comes back to it every once in a while. Like, she's like, I have to understand that, like, a lot of, a lot of these families are, like, every day, like, struggling to survive. Like, yeah. survival is the key at this point. Being able to attend and, like, do everything you're asking for them in the school is great and we really want this kid who we have like to be able to maybe be more successful than us the parents are trying but like a lot of times it's like they don't have the like you said the mental cycles to be able to really work on this stuff because they're just worried about like when am i gonna how how are we gonna eat tonight like <laughs> so yep it's tough. i'm trying to look up there's a there was a study that was showing how if you're basically if you're poor in like your iq level actually goes down and it's by yeah. a significant margin. I forget. I forget what it's called. Like the actual study of it. But that's not because you don't have the capacity. It's because you don't have the, the 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 freedom or the room to apply that capacity to whatever that test is. I mean, shit, how many of these poor people are actually going and getting these fucking IQ tests? So I mean, yeah, like... yeah. Well, here, here it is. It's um. It was actually on, it's on Inc.com, but it's um. I forget the lady's name. But just struggling to pay your bills, which is scarcity mindset, lowers yeah. your IQ by 13 points. 13 points. Because you got to worry about shit that other folks that have an abundance don't have to worry about. You're not worrying about paying your bills. Like right now, I'm not worried about paying my bills. Like they're, they're good. <laughs> so. so, Okay, on that topic. So like today, so we got a like military got a pay raise on the first um for for this area specifically we also got a uh, increase in our bah which was absolutely needed because oh, it nice. was way under what the housing market it was for this time or whatever um so then one of the the people i work with was like did you actually see like your pay go up or because he's like because my paycheck went down and i was like well yeah but you also didn't pay taxes for four months or whatever it was and then now had to back pay all the taxes for oh. last year yeah, Jesus Christ. Like, so it might just balance out, or like maybe leave you with a little bit under. But it was funny because they're like, "Did you did you see a pay increase?" I was like, "I don't pay attention to how much I get paid. <laughs> I don't worry about it anymore." <laughs> yeah, at that point, I don't notice. Like I, I buy what I need. I buy most of the time what I want, and, and make sure that I don't lose everything. But I don't like the dollars and cents don't enter my mind most days, and that's absolutely what we're talking about which is completely the, the like i'm at the point in abundance where I, i'm not even thinking about scarcity at all for me for sure yeah and it, and it frees up a, a lot of things you know and i think that america has it's like the it's like the the soft underbelly of america where we're like we know these people are failing and but we're mm-hmm. allowing them to fail you know and, and this i'll bring it back to like what the actual conversation is but you have whole countries that are like that 
to our yeah. whole countries are failing and they're like what the fuck do we do you know what let's just go proverbially you know punch somebody in the face and take what they got you know because we need because, we want we want what they got because it's at least something that you feel like you could do right like, that's yeah. like this is this is what we're able to accomplish we don't have anything else left we need to go get it i, I, I do have to say though like was that a keto, like, I need to lose weight punch at the soft underbelly? No. <laughs> Get out of here, man. You can probably run further than me right now. Put me on a bike, though. I'm good. <laughs> so so um, we talked a bit about just ad bellum, which is there. And, and even in those cases, like, there, there might be a justification in those, like, super scarcity mindsets that you could see some justification for that conflict. But I still feel like it's, and, and it's covered in a lot of these too, in, in his book, there's a couple specific examples about saying that it's not justified because no effort was made in most of those cases because you would have kind of seen it coming if you did and, and told them no. Then they're kind of justified too because you provided zero support and didn't help them and they're in that now position where they're not left with any other options. Um, so in those cases, it starts to become justified. But if it was, I didn't even talk to them. I know that they have it. We need it. I'm just going to go take it. That's not justified. Like it's, it's because we have to start making some rules. And that's a big part about why this book was made is that he felt like people, people kind of fall into two categories. They say um, for, for war, there's like no reason to do it. It's never justified. It's not okay ever. Um, and then there's another group who's just like, there's a whole lot of reasons that you could go to conflict or whatever. So he's trying to find like, we need to find a middle ground where we can talk about it and say, these are the kinds of things that make it okay. And we can talk as interconnected societies as a planet at this point, it's starting to get to the point where we're so interconnected now in the, you know, in the late, like, it's not late, but far into the, the 21st century we're really talking global economies and we're talking about globalism things like we really need to start talking as like a world community. And so he's like, if we're going to talk about these things, and this is the 1970s, we need to have some discussion on it. And that's why he wanted to start this conversation with this book. So, but. Well, I mean, it's interesting you talk about like, like globally, because I think that there's this whole push, especially in over the past, you know, four years about being so anti-globalism, you know, like, just, like, fuck the rest of the world, like, America first. Like, I understand, yeah. If you're an American, yeah, America should be first. Like, I get that. But there's a whole lot of rhetoric that comes after that, where it's just, like, fuck everything. Like, it, just look at, like, the, the whole COVID-19 thing. And they were just like, oh, we need to get everybody in America, you know, vaccinated before the rest of the world. I'm just like, what? So, you, are, are you just, we're just going to shut down America until all of America gets vaccinated? And then, like, what are we going to do? Then you're gonna give it to them, and I mean, first, I mean, and also, well, it's gonna get into more bullshit, but we we didn't have a good response to it. But it's like shit like that, where it's like it's really short sighted, where you think that you know only our human lives matter, you know, rather than the entire world. Like, yeah, I, I get that we should we should have priorities for America. I get that, yeah. but these so, other people are are human beings too, <laughs> so. A topic I think that is the next one, which kind of plays into this very, very specific topic is like, the, because it's a capitalist concept, right? It allowed us to be able to figure out a solution. So we, we were able to drive, drive people towards the idea, like, hey, if I figure out the freaking vaccine, I'm going to make some money. Yeah. Right? So that yeah. they put a lot of effort into figuring it out. 
And so they still do need to make money because of the way our society is set as an economy or a capitalist economy. But there also should be the, the humanist side of it where they say, so what we need to do, what the right thing to do, because one manufacturing plant, or even if you own as Pfizer or whatever, 10, unless you turn everything over to making only this one thing, you're not going to produce enough for the world to sell it to everybody. Yeah. Right. So that you have to sell the formula and sell the, sell the ability to produce it in other countries to these other people, make some money off of it still, but like, let's get this thing out there. So th there are ways to do it in the capitalist society, but like it might not have made as much money. So they maybe weren't as interested, but it, there's gotta be a balance between the two. And that's yeah. where I feel the, the kind of one of the topics I mentioned earlier to talk about maybe later would be like capitalism versus socialism versus communism. Like what's the differences and why do certain things work and what's, what's there. And me personally, like even as a libertarian, libertarians don't shoot me. Um, I feel like, like a Republic, the right answer is kind of, kind of a balancing act. Yeah. And no one's really written that out yet. And I, I, I've been interested for a while in to trying to really lay out the groundwork of a like Republic version of an economy where you're like, you need some of this and some of that and some of this, and it's in these specific areas and really kind of try to, in my head, what I see break that down as like a, the right answer kind of thing. Cause anything, anything that goes extreme as soon as, I mean, I'm pretty much pretty sure anybody should agree except those people who are extremists, but once you go like really, really, really super extreme onto one side or the other of any topic, you lose sight of like the bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really do. That's, that's one of the reasons what that I really liked Andrew Yang. I talked about him on the EBI yeah. episode. Um, but it was really just figuring out a new 21st century economy yeah. that has like a melding of multiple concepts. Cause I, I think right now, I think people are start, starting to see in America, the, some of the failings, some of the failings of capitalism. Don't get me wrong. Capitalism has done a fantastic job for America for a very long time. But at this point in time, I think that it needs to be modified and or replaced with a better system because we can't just pretend that like this concept that was, you know, hundreds or maybe even thousands of years old can, can apply to a society that has the fucking Internet. You know what I mean? And all these other issues that, you know, trillion dollar companies, tr you know, people that have the vast majority of money, which don't get me wrong. If you want to be a wealthy billionaire, be a wealthy billionaire. But our the capitalist society is not really um it doesn't really account for that 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 amount of wealth for a single person it really doesn't especially when you have so we have in our, in our tax codes we have all these ways you can get around paying taxes right even for corporations but i don't think that that should be possible um i think that if you live in america and you uh made the vast majority of your wealth in america and you use american public works you need to pay your fair share. And I don't think that's arguable for anybody. So when people talk about, you know, people get mad at, you know, Jeff Bezos or, you know, Bill Gates or blah, 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 blah. Listen, I get it. Like they don't, they don't probably pay as much taxes as, you know, normal people as far as percentages goes, especially when, when like the vast majority of their money are in uh, stocks, which there's, those aren't really taxed at all. But they also um, use charity to give their money away. But in my mind, it's like, why, why are we relying on these people's charity when it should just be going to the, it, it could be, it could be, not should be, it could be going to the government to make all of our society better instead of them picking and choosing 
where their money goes. Yeah, but so so this is where we may actually disagree on something too. So look at that. But what I would say is that I would prefer individuals to choose charities that they provide to so that the charity has to be successful. Otherwise me as a person who wants to give money to it, like say it's an organization that's not March and dimes, but is also interested in like children's medical research stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, and obviously March and dimes is going to do a way better job of covering it because they already have this huge network and they have these places they can take care of. Why would I donate to this secondary like thing that's trying to, take money away from March of Dimes, basically, in my opinion, right? So I would be like, well, why wouldn't I just give to them who could take care of it? Um, but if we then replace March of Dimes with some government organization who is supposed to be responsible for children's cancer research, like, and other children's birth defect research things, like, they're going to fuck it up. They're yeah. going to do a terrible job at it. So, so I would rather give my money to someone like me or you who is running an organization that we know, like, look, their heart is 100% in this. They want to do better. It's not just a bureaucracy that says they have to do something and there's these rules that they have to follow and that's all that they have to do. And it's going to always be the bare minimum. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a good point, but I'll, I'll give a couple of examples. I was going to say three, but I'm probably only going to give two examples or or like kind of refute to what you're saying. Um, Yeah. The the charitable donations, obviously that's a good point. Um, But uh, you can't rely on charitable, charitable donations when it comes to like public works. Like I can't, I can't rely on Bill Gates to put in money to keep building bridges or upkeep, up, upkeep bridges and shit like that. Like that's just not going to happen. Um, also, when it comes to uh, like the March of Dimes and stuff like that, um, I don't even think we should in America. Why the fuck do we even have a March of Dimes? Like why, why is this a necessity in America to have like this charitable organization that um, is to basically keep mostly kids healthy? in America when we can use tax dollars to fund an organiz- to fund something um, to keep them healthy to begin with. But more to your point, um, the government has fucked up a lot of shit. They have. And so this is where it needs to kind of be like a, you know, melding of, of ideas where like, Hey, like you guys had, when it comes to like public works are, you know, in that point, it's going to get into like universal healthcare. Yeah, let's get a hybrid idea going on where we combine, you know, both uh, government work and public and private work and figure this shit out to where we don't have any more goddamn sick kids that can't afford health care, you know, but but relying on billionaires through their charity to do that. I mean, there are some billionaires. Yeah, well, they're willing to give away their money, but there's, but it should not. It's not an obligation. <laughs> that That's the problem. Like we're, we're relying on obligations of these people that that are wealthy. But, you know, if, if you become a billionaire you have zero obligation to give money to anybody. None. So the problem is, so our system uses taxation and like the ability to not be taxed to incentivize certain behaviors. Right. So I, I totally agree that what we could do is not allow those donations to be like getting you out of providing to the basic stuff too. Right. Yeah. There still should be like a baseline. Like you can't end up under this amount. Yeah. If you do your job as a, a very wealthy person and provide to these charities that can help help our society, cool. You can get a certain amount off of what it is that you're paying into our taxes, but you still need to pay a certain amount in. Like to be able to get up with zero is stupid. Yeah. Okay. So that's one part of it that I could definitely lean towards. 
Um, and for a while I had this idea with taxes and what I want to kind of segue into is maybe we should just do a whole taxes episode. Yeah. That'd be a um, good one. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a huge topic, but like I've totally shifted my philosophy on taxation. Um, and I think that would make for a really good topic and maybe I'll just leave that as a cliffhanger. Okay. What did he use to what does he think now? Yeah, who knows? I, I changed my ideas on taxes too. I think it, I forget the guy who had the idea. It might have been Mike Huckabee. Yeah, and and I think like we talked about too, some of the Andrew Yang stuff uh, was definitely good and opened my eyes to a couple of other ideas of ways we can solve some of the problems. So uh, well, we just yeah. need we just need better ideas. I, I just tell you, we just need better ideas. Just we need to stop. We're, we're we've been using the the momentum of ideas in America for like four hundred fucking years. Yeah, well, not, not four hundred, not that many, but it's it's been hundreds of years, probably three hundred something years. But um, it's been way too long where we've just had these rules that were in the time of muskets, and it's just like, how are we still yeah. using these ideas uh, today when we have we have modern problems? There's not a single issue in seventeen seventy five. Not a single. There's very few issues in seventeen seventy five that are really applicable to today. You know. Yeah. I mean, even like, to your roads, like that's not a thing. Yeah, they weren't about maintaining roads and bridges and stuff like that. Yeah, so we just need to, if America wants to still keep being on top, which it's kind of fucking shifty right now, but if we want to keep being a world power, we need to have better ideas that are modern ideas and just stop riding the wave because the wave is almost done. the The wave is at the shore, and it's almost done at this point in time. And if we don't, yeah, if we don't make a new wave, then we're not going to be on top anymore. Russia and China and probably not North Korea, but probably Russia or China, one of the two, are going to be the next world power. And we are not going to like it. So the issue isn't new and good ideas. It's the ability to implement them. I think plenty of people have these, but it's so difficult to get anything new to actually happen. And that's where that's where the that's where the real like change needs to happen so that we can make these ideas happen faster. Um, have you heard of brick B R I C as like the next concept of big, big nations thing? No. So it's, it's this idea that it's Brazil, Russia, India, China. So those four are like really the, the ones referred to as brick in a lot of big, big discussions on economies and world power concepts. Um, where changes are happening in those countries so fast and their growth is huge. And it's funny too, because Brazil is put in first, not because it already is, but it shows such huge potential for growth beyond oh, yeah. what it is everybody thinks of them about right now that, and they're going to be like that sleeper one that like, no one's thinking about it. like, Oh man, where the heck did Brazil come from in the world power like discussion? Um, Granted, there's a lot of organizations trying to slow them down because they're like destroying the Amazon and all sorts of stuff. Well, it's not just not just that; it's the their government is kind of fucking them up themselves. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's like but, a lot. We have corruption here, but they have a lot of corruption there. What's that? I said that the corruption there is like it's 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 pretty bad. I would be very interested, and I'm going to be very careful about what I say and pay attention to the previously mentioned disclaimer. Um, I would be very interested to see a study that actually compared the levels of corruption uh, between Brazil and maybe some other countries. Yeah. Okay. I'm picking up what you're putting down. I can say it. Um, 
between it, like us and them. So I'm, I'm speaking from a guy who, you know, I, I've been doing Brazilian Jiu Jitsu for like more than seven years now. My instructor is Brazilian. Yeah. So like, and when he talks about like the, like politics in Brazil, I'm just like, holy shit. Like yeah. the stuff with, uh, like, you know how I'll give you an example, like the Olympics. All right, so in the Olympics here in America, you know how like we have like these Olympic cities and they like, pour all this money in the Olympic cities, and you know it costs us a lot of money, but also we we end up using those buildings afterwards, right? For the most part, we end up using them for whatever you know for various reasons. Other arenas use them as other sporting good sporting locations. Yeah, yeah, we'll find something for. In Brazil, when they had the the World Cup, they built like all these. Um, facilities for just the world cup and some of them were in the middle of fucking nowhere like seriously like they're just like in a fucking jungle somewhere like literally in the jungle and they were used like once or twice and now they're just like they're just rotting and it's just like and and you'd have like my instructor would show me videos of like these crazy like the way that the police work in brazil and the way they take down criminals and and don't get me wrong i'm not I'm, i'm not trying to shit on brazil I'm just saying they have issues as well. I mean, we have issues too. Don't be wrong with police. When it comes, especially with police brutality, we have issues here too. But it's just I, like I, I've been known to describe Brazil as like a very metropolitan uh, wild west, right? So like, <laughs> it depends on where you live. Like, stuff just happens, and like it gets taken care of, and and most of the time you're like, I see how that happened. Okay, cool. Maybe we we want to put some rules in place, but like there's still huge cities and it's still very like very modern stuff going on, but yeah. still, it's still very wild west about how stuff is handled. I was like, Ooh, as much as I read about it, it, it's a little crazy. I'd love to see a study specifically. And I, I need to look and see if there isn't one. Cause it probably is, but yeah, literally directly comparing corruption levels between all of them. I know that the, um, there's a, there's a site that I usually use to compare countries on statistics. Mm-hmm. And I know that there is a corruption tab that they have to compare the two. And I may have to do some for the next conversation. Because maybe for whatever it is, taxes or um, economies, whatever we decide to do. But like I could pull up some stuff about that maybe. I, I had never thought to research and compare the differences between Brazil and specifically a couple other countries maybe. What, so, what I think... Noting. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I think that when we talk about me saying it, not you, when we talk about American corruption is that people kind of downplay the amount of corruption that we have here in America. I mean, we literally changed words to get around bribery. I mean, we just call it lobbying. It's fucking bribery. You know what I mean? So when people say, oh, I'm just, we got lobbyists, we got that. Just translate that in your mind from now on going forward is bribery. All right. Somebody's paying money to get their agenda across. It's fucking bribery. And I mean, and a lot of times like the concept started right with, with good intentions, like a lot of things do trying to protect people because they pre- pretty much lobbies started as lobbies for unions to try to make it so that workers had safe workspaces. It's yeah. literally like the whole reason the whole concept started. Um, but then everybody wanted to start one because, well, I want to protect my business too. And I want people up there and stuff. And it's gotten a little out of hand to be completely honest. It really has like somebody, when was it? I think it was like last week. Somebody was asking me, yeah, it was last week. Uh, like, why don't you get into politics? Like, why don't you become like a politician? I'm like, literally, like people, uh, more than one person has asked me about this before. And I, I think after like the fifth person asked me, I was like, you know, I'm gonna look up how much politicians make. 
So I looked it up. Like, I'm going to be, uh, what if I want to be like a local mayor or some council member or something like that? I looked at, I looked at the actual, like, the amount of money they make. And I was like, no, like, get out of here. Like, it's like, I would have to be the crookedest politician for me to like, unless I was like super, unless I was like literally like a, on the Senate or something like that. Um, I couldn't even live the life I'm living now, like on, on normal, unless I was like the mayor of like LA or San Francisco or something like that, which I'm, that's not going to happen. Come on. So like, so you may know this about me. I think we've talked a little bit about it. So my goal at some point is to really hold positions and try to make things better in whatever place I decide to settle in. Yes. So this whole life of mine (laughs) has been a plan towards that goal with, uh, you know, a pension and like follow on career and then potentially politics where I know that I've got whatever I need already sitting there financially. Right. Yeah. It's not about whatever the mayor's pay is. I, like I could literally do what a lot of presidents lately have done, which is like, I make so much money. I don't have to worry about it. Oh, president's pay. Oh, I'll put it back in the company. Like, yeah, but dude, you're talking about a hundred thousand dollars where you're making $650,000 per year on your residuals from the other things that you've done. Yeah. So yeah. we're not worried about, Ooh, good job giving back a freaking a tiny little portion of what it is that you make. No one cares. And it's also what's hilarious to me was then when a certain person talks about, you know, giving the their salary back or putting it to charity. It's like, but it's not even your money. It's, it's tax dollars. Like what, like <laughs> you're literally giving back the money to the people that already belong to the people. And probably giving it to an organization, depending on which president we're talking about, different ones, different things that you have an interest in and, helps you anyways exactly so it's like it's not it's not altruism i mean it's not <laughs> so it's supposed to be yeah, yeah. it's supposed to, i mean I, I get it but it's just like i don't <laughs> yeah maybe I should, um, maybe maybe listen if, if i ever get on your level obviously i'm nowhere near retirement you are you're very close to retirement you can retire right I now agree. yeah um i'm not in that same boat but yeah. if if i did have you know, enough residual income to do it. Maybe I think about it, but at this point in time, it's like, you know, I don't have, um, I need to have like a, the job that I have is pretty, pretty fucking cush. I don't, I work four days a week and I'm happy, but if if I can ever make it so I can replace the income that I currently have right now, which is pretty substantial, if I can replace that income and then do whatever I wanted to, I probably just teach jujitsu, but maybe I think about, um, being a politician and like actually making a difference on this planet um rather than you know other than doing this podcast so hopefully this is this podcast is helping some people out you know to understand yeah, this, but, yeah. So like this and and that was one of my thoughts for maybe a follow-on career like to get the gap between the two because i still want to wait a little while i still want to feel like i'm doing a little more grassroots stuff before i maybe even try to run for any kind of office but it would be teaching civics type classes like this to high school students so that way we're making a better voter population <laughs> when they go out like you are actually educated enough to go make these decisions thank you um be that guy making that difference potentially even teach college classes on political science and things so i could i could see doing that as the in-between so that on both levels like stepping from here i've already served the country but like serve our nation by teaching youth how to like participate in this better be more active participants um and then eventually like do that myself also so that would be cool. Yeah, I thought about doing like teaching poor kids on like yeah. computers in general, like especially what I do, like specifically like data storage, because I think yeah. that you know 
one of the things I took for granted, like growing up, is that I didn't, I didn't need somebody that looked like me, to like, know what I wanted to do. I think a lot of people they they need to have somebody that looks kind of like them to understand that hey, I can do it too. But for me, I just didn't care. Maybe I was too stupid. I don't know. But I knew what I wanted to do from since I was like eleven years old. I was like, I'm work work on computers. I'm good. But I'm I'm seeing now that there's like a lot of kids that are you know minority kids especially even just not even just minorities it's most minorities but even if you're like a a poor white kid in America you might not know that you can do these things yeah and I think that there is some value in showing that you can do it it just it takes some work but it's probably not as hard or as difficult that you think like there was like some uh, a black nerd group that I'm a part of. And I made a comment about like what I do for a living and like vaguely how much I get paid and how much how much I actually work. And they were just like, oh, my God, like, what do you do? Blah, 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 blah. I'm just like, when did you, where did you go to college? I'm like, I didn't go to college. Like, you don't have to go to college to do all this stuff. Like, you don't. Right. <laughs> so that's what I was just writing down because of what you said made me think of something. So like we're talking education systems and like college versus trade schools. And I would love to make that a whole topic. Like, yes. I think that's me too. We should definitely talk about that at some point because because i think what you described is this idea that um you know we have such a structured system in the united states and and it doesn't have to be bad but sometimes it it is it goes that way here because the reason i say it doesn't have to i've spent a lot of time in japan and i know you know like i love japan and their school system is highly structured like super super structured um but theirs is also very successful in educating their population to be ready to move into their next career. Um, like you have to get selected to make it to the high school level. <laughs> wow. If you're going to like middle school level stuff, like in the United States, call it like middle school, junior high school. Like you have competitive tests to determine which high school you get to go to. Like if you don't test well, you're just going to that high school instead of going to like the really good one. That's like got trade school stuff and teaches you all of the, like really going to make you really ready for it. They basically decided, no, you're dumb. You're gonna, <laughs> you're go over there. I'm like, dang, that's crazy. It's not even college. So by the time you're going to high school, you're already like starting to get groomed to move into certain professions. So it's pretty yeah. cool. But I mean, it's also super structured. So like for the arts and like some of the other stuff, there's not that flexibility to be like artistic and the other things and still fall into their system very well. Yeah, I would not have sur- not have survived. Very- well, I mean, I didn't survive in American school system. I mean, I, I barely passed high school, so like seriously, barely. <laughs> but like, I think there's there's room within our system if we can make it clear to the public that they have these opportunities where you could go to a trade school or do some of the things that don't necessarily follow the traditional like college process. But it's twofold, right? Teach the students that they can go to these other options. But then also like hold the businesses accountable. Like you need to make it clear that they could come to you with these other skills. So yeah, th- people get people get left behind a lot of times when they totally could have accomplished the mission for that that company because they didn't have some college degree. Like, yeah. But I went. To, I've done a similar job for five years, and I went to a trade school, and I have a certification. And I like hire that person because they probably actually care more. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about it on another podcast. Let's get back to. Because I want to talk about it more, but we need to get back on, on topic. We do. Um, so there's only really one big part left of the very specific topic I wanted to cover, um, and that's just in Bellum. So we talked about just ad Bellum, which is, is it justified to start a conflict? 
But then there's also within his concept um, and within his book, a concept called just in Bellum, which is basically like, are your actions even within war justified? And that's where there becomes the really, really huge argument of people who say it's war, like love and war, all things are justified. You could do whatever the hell you want. Once the war has started, like there are no rules, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a serious argument though, because like, what what is said by them is that if you look historically people break what we might think are the rules of like justify like proper conflict between each other like being still humane but prosecuting a war um they go to to super huge extremes and very rarely are held accountable for those actions um and his counterpoint, and it's laid out really well in several parts of the book. And I, I, I still want to just recommend that, like, maybe you're not going to go sit and read the whole thing, but find parts that you find interesting and read those. But um, he lays out how, like, in every single one of those examples, that's not true. Either they're held accountable for breaking what are pretty common rules or without anyone telling anyone, because some of these are far enough back in history. No one has said, this is what you're supposed to do <laughs> when you go to war. It just, that didn't exist. But you can just see that there are some very common norms of things it's okay for everybody to do and everybody knows going into the conflict it's okay to do this and it's not okay to do that um in those includes like delineations between combatants and non-combatants like it, what is an acceptable like situation where loss of life for non-combatants um and in the book they specifically talk to you can talk soldiers for combatants and civilians for non-combatants and they're kind of interchangeable terms um but like when is it acceptable to say like some non-combatants are probably going to get killed as we take this action but the goal that we're trying to achieve the thing that we're trying to stop the actions we're trying to take are are worth that potential loss um, and it has to be something where you can say i can see that it outweighs it the thing we're trying to stop right that has to be there or it's not just fun yeah, this is where, like, my perception of war really changed was, like, when it came to, like, the amount of civilian death, especially with um, the recent, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan wars, where it's just, mm -hmm. like, there's been uh, way, way too many, in my in my opinion anyway, civilian deaths in, in those two wars that are not justified to me really at all like i understand that you know 9-11 happened yeah we need to go find a bad guy we found the bad guys we killed a lot of them but it, at the same time it's like when do we when do we end those wars you know because we started two wars from from one event i think one was sort of ancillary wasn't in my mind was less justified than the other um but at the same time it's just like when do we end this? Like, I, I don't understand why we, we keep um, sending assets and dropping bombs and keeping shooting people in these countries where we have no real, there's, there's no end goal as far as I'm concerned to either one of those wars at this point in time. And we're kind of just like letting these things run on. And I don't understand the point anymore. I think that most of, most of America doesn't even understand that we're still going, we're still at war in both those countries. We still have boots on the ground. We start dropping bombs. People are still getting killed, including you know our own people, and we're so far from so far removed from it that people just don't really seem to care anymore, and, it, and it's insane to me. 
um, that 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 that's the way it is to this day. Where it's just like, if you ha- if we had a justification, which we did in the very beginning, what are you justified in doing? Like, what what was your whole what was our goal as a country in starting these wars, and when does it end? So, like what you're mentioning, I think is kind of separating two things, right? Where you can say there's a pretty straightforward justification for conflict in Afghanistan because it was it was identified through intelligence reports yeah. and through claims by the organization that an organization pretty much housed in Afghanistan, separate from that government itself, though, uh, was responsible for the attack on the United States at the World Trade Center and uh, the Capitol and the plane that crashed in Pennsylvania, but during 9-11, right? that retaliation against that organization is justified for a just ad belt. Like we are allowed to make this attack because we're trying to, it's weird though, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it starts to sound like revenge, right? We're trying to take revenge for, and I, is that justified? It kind of, I mean, it kind of is, but yeah, it, I, I understand. Like it's, it's the, the wording is like revenge doesn't sound as good as like, I don't know, a, a different word, I guess, that you can use. <laughs> it's not like we were worried about being invaded. We're not worried about, like, losing yeah. our, our nation itself. We weren't worried about... Um, so the only wording that works, right, is worrying about preventing further attacks of the similar nature from that same organization. So we're going to go try to stop that organization from having the capacity to continue to prosecute the same kinds of attacks. That makes sense. You're like, okay, so this organization was totally capable of doing that. Let's go stop them from being able to do that. So I could get that. But like I said, you need kind of some clear objectives and what the end state is and then when you can leave. Um, And it became instead of a fight against an organization that happens to be housed inside this country and the country let them be there, wasn't like helping them, but didn't stop me. So they're not like helping, but they're also kind of culpable too. So I, I know we replaced some people in the government too, which doesn't necessarily tie in with this either very well. doesn't meet a lot of these requirements. When the organization that is where we get weird now, because like the rules are generally written like countries fighting, but now we have these organizations that span countries and still cause the same kinds of problems that are outlined in, in the book. And and had to, like, I think in his 2015 version, because I've noticed some notes on it, but I can't access those sections, uh, really covered terrorism and a lot of, like, the ways those maybe need to be handled. And I'd love, I, I want to actually, I'm going to get a new copy uh, because I want to see the differences between traditional nation-state conflicts and what he writes about for terrorism. Because I do feel like you kind of almost need a whole new discussion on it because that that example there where, it kind of makes sense to say, I want to stop that organization from being able to do this kind of thing. But like, how far can you stretch that before you're really infringing on those countries that happen to have this organization in it and maybe just aren't, don't have the capacity to stop them from being there. I know there's a lot of issues in like Indonesia where there are terrorist organization cells within the country and they're, they are working their butt off to try to squash these freaking terrorist groups. But that, it's a very, very spread out, multiple island nation state, lots and lots of jungle, and they're in the mountains and in the jungle. Like there's only so much that anyone could do. Yeah. And so for us to try to think like I'm going to go in there and take care of it, 
it kind of it's taken over their their anonymity the that's not the right word their um it's kind of like autonomy right basically do whatever they want yeah it's a word a lot like that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i don't know it's it'd be like uh imagine this from the from the, from the american side when it comes to the taliban Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we're talking about, Taliban and uh, and Afghanistan. Could you imagine if, like the, the we had an insurrection, attempted insurrection last week? All right, imagine if the insurrection was successful and they took over part of our government, or and they started sort of running the show. Most America is not on board for this. Could you imagine if that same insurrection group decided to, I don't know, bomb some building in China, and then all of a sudden China invaded us? You're just like, what the fuck? They're not American. Like we don't, we're not cool with these guys. We don't want them yeah. here, but they just happen to have part of our nation, you know, to do whatever. That's kind of like what we're doing with Afghanistan. And don't get me wrong. This, these are using very simplistic terms. Obviously it's way more complicated than that, but I'm, I'm trying to break it down. Yeah. yeah. But that, that, that's kind of like what it was like. And we've been at war with, with Afghanistan for fucking more than 10 years. Like it's insane. Like, I think we're, when did we go? When did we start? Is it more than 10 years? I'm pretty sure it has been. It's been 17 years. Yeah. 17. Jesus Christ. We're coming up on 20 years. That's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Like, um, so I'm writing a book um, with a major who's like in Quantico. So it's a complicated process. Um, and it's one you'd actually totally dig. Have you read um, Phoenix Project? No, but I can. Oh, I mean, geez. That's, so that's like right in your wheelhouse. So it's it's um, on DevOps concepts. Okay. You know, DevOps. Uh, explain. So DevOps is like, an effort towards basically taking like um, Lean Six Sigma and like Lean processes for manufacturing and applying those to the IT world. So like let's take these same concepts and like really with with effort, like focus them in on things that we need to think about and apply towards IT operations. Okay. Um, and so then Phoenix Project is an effort from the guys who kind of developed the concept of DevOps um, through their lessons learned through trying to run some organizations who were running really, really badly and like fixing them up. Got it. So then they created this fictional organization and fictional characters, but made it really kind of like character driven. It's fiction, but it's engaging and teaches a real lesson. Um, and then they have a follow on, which is the unicorn project. Um, so what he and I are trying to do is take, take that same, same feeling that you get from the Phoenix project and try to teach the military <laughs> to do the same thing. Like think, think about things, like this and try to streamline these IT processes and understand that the business side, as they refer to it in, in the, the um, DevOps processes and like in the civilian world and that the IT organization within your company can't just operate separately. Like you have to be intertwined. Like business objectives are IT objectives. So real quick, I'm sorry. Let's rewind just for a second. So when you said DevOps, I was literally thinking development, development operations. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah. so, so when you said it in like that, those terms, I was like, that they can't fit. But I, I guess that is what you're talking about. Because I looked up the book, and that's basically what you're talking about. I downloaded yeah. it. So, yeah. So it. So we are trying to basically rewrite that with Marine Corps characters and Marine Corps units, and like learn to integrate same concepts from a, a more military angle. And uh, I forgot where we started. <laughs> <laughs> Why did I bring that up? Um, we were talking about uh, not forever wars, but basically we're talking about Afghanistan. Fucking oh yeah, okay, awesome. So to build these characters out, I wanted to start with 
that that main character who's going to be the guy who kind of like drives the IT portion into like operations within the organization really has to get them there. So what I wanted for this character was a major now, right? Someone who's a major in the Marine Corps right now, but was prior enlisted and participated in like that very first push into Afghanistan with Task Force 58. So like I interviewed a whole bunch of people who went in with Task Force 58, like right after 9-11. So by, by October, November of 2001, we had people going into Afghanistan. Nice. Yeah. So it's almost 19 years. <laughs> like like this, yeah. like this year will be 20 years. Yeah. I was just like trying to remember. I was like, yeah. Cause I remember I got hit with stop loss in 2003 and yeah. I, and I went, I was on, I was part of operation enduring freedom in 2002. So yeah. Jesus Christ. A lot of time. Yeah. Gone by. And we're, and we're, we're, still... we're past 19. This will be 20 years since we started our, our efforts we'll call it in, uh, in Afghanistan. Yeah. It, to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Like why we're still there. Like what is the end goal here? Like, is it, yeah. is the end goal to get rid of terrorism altogether? It's not going to, that's, it's not going to happen there. <laughs> it's because of the words, right? So we said, we're going to start a war, which we're talking about here. Like, am I justified in starting a war? And in that case, probably against that organization that attacked us, prevent that capability. But when you start a war on a concept which is terrorism. Like, yeah. There is no end goal there. Like, there is no way where that ever all goes away. It'd be like a war on fear. Well, it's, it's literally like the war on drugs. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's just like the war on drugs. Like this is literally, it's the same exact problems yes. that we're having with the war on terrorism. Cause it, you, you can't fight a concept. Like nope. uh, there, there's always going to be people that are going to want to do America harm. Or anybody harm, and for you to fight that with with extreme violence, I think yeah. in the long run it's not going to work. You you need to fight it in way different ways than just like let me use the hammer, you know. Just like with the war on drugs, like the war on drugs, the problem isn't the drugs. The problem is the people that that want the drugs. But yeah. the whole time we've been doing the war on drugs, you've never. I'm not going to say you. Uh, our government has never seemed to understand that there's a portion of the population that wants to use these drugs to escape reality you're not you're not seeing the problem there you just see that oh we have drugs i can go shoot people that have drugs and make drugs but that's not the problem or or there are people who have a like a disease right addiction really becomes a psychological disorder that need you need help to get through and understand and honestly like a lot of people who get started everybody i talked to who ever went into something super hard didn't really understand how bad some of that stuff was like, Oh cool. It's fun. The first couple of times, but like you realize by doing that, like you're going to, you are probably going to go down the far end of that. So they're not educated well enough. Same as we talk about for voting. So like, I, I look at where we are right now as, as kind of like the end of prohibition <laughs> where like, that was a really rough time. Like when we tried to do that, we tried to outlaw alcohol, like it got violent really really violent across the country really bad yeah and so i see i i, I don't know like I, I could look up the date but i don't know when the the like law type stuff was implemented where we started the war on drugs but it's been it's in the at 80s. least 30 years. yeah it was in the 80s it was it was during the uh reagan, reagan administration I'm, I'm pretty sure so yeah it's been like close to 40 years and it's just like if it was a war we fucking lost <laughs> like we didn't win at all. Like, I, I don't understand what we keep, but it's, it goes back to us versus them, you know, because the, the original, 
that dialogue going, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really does. Which to me, to me, from a political science, political science point of view, makes no sense if you're trying to keep the whole nation successful. Like it should always be us versus someone else. But that we keep doing this internal thing of like trying to make it us who have power and have money against them who don't internal to our own country like damn it people come on like if we did it us versus them externally we would be way more successful for everyone yeah but i think it's we're so ingrained with the us versus them just in in a it's specific specifically in the in american society that mm-hmm. it that's just what we're used to i mean people don't don't understand what that when you do us versus them uh you ever heard of run the jewels like the the rap group what is it run the jewels the rap group I don't think so. It's, it's really good because they go into like a lot of political things and like their actual like verses in rap. But one of the guys yeah. that was, he was rapping a, a verse about um, once you build a cage and like it's for, if you're at the bottom, basically it's for anybody. So once you start building that cage and it's built, like eventually it's, they're going to come for people that look like you because that cage needs to, needs to get filled. And that's why I think that most people in America, they don't seem to realize. So when we first started doing the the war on drugs it was it was mainly towards um kind of curtailing mostly hippies and brown people um but once they started seeing that you know white people were doing these drugs too they were just like well fuck them they fit in the same cage as everybody else and we're just gonna let them we'll eat our own for this for the sake of of our country you know but it's just like if i don't care if somebody's we went over this probably multiple times on other podcasts but I don't care if you're doing drugs. I really don't. If you're doing other crimes, then yes, I care about those specific crimes. But you just trying to modify your reality. Look, I don't care. I modify my reality on the daily with video games, alcohol, and other things. You know what I mean? And it's totally legal. But just because you decide to, like, you know, take some coke or shoot some heroin, as long as your life is together, even if your life isn't fucking together, I don't give a shit. Just don't hurt somebody else or, you know, rob somebody or, you know, I, I, why, why should I care that you're doing that to yourself? Yeah. Because cause in those cases, if the drugs led to it and you weren't justified in doing so, you didn't have just ad bellum to start that conflict with someone else and hurt them. Yeah. Right? So as we say, you don't hurt somebody else, I don't care. Because you weren't justified in doing so. So what becomes weird is, is like right now, especially with uh, the way we treat drugs across the country too, is that like, say someone was altered for their reality for whatever reason or whatever, and then was attacked by someone else, fully justified to defend themselves, they'd still be in trouble. Like for the drugs, like that person tried to hurt me. Yeah. Like they were trying to stab me and I defended myself and they got stabbed because I'm just good at freaking getting this, like I, I got it, right? And, and if you think that what he just said is like totally insane, if you Sorry, if you look at like uh, George Floyd last year, uh, mm-hmm. after George Floyd, you know, he got murdered for like nine minutes, you know, and you saw in the news, like, what did they bring up? Like the, you know, a certain segment of society was just like, oh, well, he was high. And I'm just like, but was he fighting the guy? Like, what, like, what the fuck? Are, I don't care if he was high. Like, you watch the guy... Die. What's up? If anything, he's more mellow. Yeah, yeah. Like he seemed pretty. I watched the whole video, which is it's hard to watch, but it's just like it is. he wasn't fighting anybody. Like he he came pretty peacefully. Yeah, when he got in the car, he 
he didn't want to be there, but he wasn't like punching. Well, obviously, he couldn't punch him in the face because his arms were already behind his back, um, and he was handcuffed. He was already restrained. And for these people to be like, "Oh, well, he was high," I'm just like, "What does that do with anything?" Yeah. Seriously. It, many people treat it as relevant, and I I don't feel like it is. Um, I get that other people have other positions on it, um, but that doesn't mean that I have to think that those are accurate or relevant. Yeah. Like, I can understand that some people feel like that by being high on something, that that impacts your ability to make judgments, which it does. But nothing in that scenario, and because you have, it has to be a case-by-case when you look at those things. Nothing in that scenario made me think that that was a contributing factor in any way. Yeah, and let's, I guess, let's bring it back to something more specific when we get go to uh, to war. Is that when we... We went to war with with Japan after after obviously Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, which is a military asset. Obviously, that was horrific. I mean, many of my brothers and sisters in arms died on that day, and they are still trapped in their bodies are in a fucking bottom of the bay. Or yeah, Kennedy right? yeah. Bay. Yeah, not Kennedy Bay. Pearl Harbor. Sorry. Yeah, Pearl Harbor. They're they're still at the bottom, and it's just like it's horrific. But um, we dropped nuclear bombs on two whole cities and i'm just like how many civilians paid the price for japan bombing a military asset and us just bombing an entire like yeah. a, a nuclear a nuclear weapon is not a precision weapon like <laughs> you're Especially fucking when on a b-52 like yeah drop generally over the city so yeah yeah i mean i I get it like uh, there's an argument to be made which is it's a valid argument like if you if you're gonna go to war make it so horrific that the other side does not want to fight you back and that way you can end it sooner but it's like damn how many how many civilians did we kill to like get that point across it's it's a lot you know so i'm I'm not gonna say one way or the other but i'm just gonna say in my mind that's a lot of people to like just Mm -hmm. got wiped out the face of the planet for I'm not gonna say nothing because obviously, going to war after Pearl Harbor was def to me it was justified, but, but it's, it's just the amount of force that was used. That to me it was just like man. <laughs> so, so the, it's two two separate portions. It kind of falls into these two categories, both parts of this particular comment, which is that so Pearl Harbor and then go to war with Japan. So that's just ad bellum. Like, are we justified to to prosecute a war against? that nation because they attacked us yes and then to what extent that keeps going uh is potentially to eliminate their capacity to continue to attack us or take us over right yeah so then how far we extend that until they capitulate and say i'm i'm not going to fight anymore so then the decision to drop nuclear weapons becomes just in bellum is that justified in the conflict like is it okay for us to go that far um and I think like many of the things like it has to be very much evaluated situationally dependent. And I don't know if you've seen like calculations that they've done because full on regular standard, exactly what we did in Okinawa. How do we then go to mainland Japan and Honshu and like full normal troop assaults, territory gaining like ground combat, right? The full analysis was done and not only like, so it was estimated to be about a million lives for us 
lost like in the conflict but like 50 million like a ridiculous number of civilians would die just because they were going to be trapped in these cities that we are ground force attacking trying to 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 take over and get them to stop so that was presented to the japanese and like we also there was it wasn't guaranteed that we were going to drop two bombs like drop one because we're like look what we can do now like can we maybe not go any further than this they're still like Nope, we're not giving up until the last Japanese person is done. Yeah. So we're like, no, All seriously, right. yeah. one more. Like, are you really seriously want to do that? And finally, the because the problem was there was it was basically like a junta. You know, it was like it was a military-led government at the time, and the emperor wasn't allowed to make decisions. And all the basically these really like hawkish folks were saying, no, we will stay at war, keep going. And uh, eventually, he was like, y'all need to shut up. Look at all these people dying. Yeah. <laughs> Someone else needs to make these decisions. You're done. Sit down. We're good. We're good. Stop, please. Uh, because it was only going to get worse. We didn't have any more nukes right then. But like, even if we just went ahead and went on with the ground assault, like, so many people were going to die. It was really bad. And it doesn't matter how much you show that to people. Like, look at the numbers. This is probably what's going to happen. They're not going to believe you. So, is it then justified if you know? I think it was it was like thirty four thousand somewhere around there in one city, and then the next city I feel like was larger actually. I want to say it was like forty or forty five. So maybe a hundred thousand people died in those two two bombs to then save a you know several million. So it's like, is this trade-off value that stopped the war is that justified? And there are there are arguments in it both ways. Um, I tend to feel like there's a pretty strong argument for um, and it's the pragmatist in me, I guess, where it's like it's a trade-off. Like if I kill thirty thousand people to save a million people it's worth it i don't know those people for one right now i can make that decision arbitrarily separate from it to save numbers of people yeah um, at least i mean you're honest I mean, about it yeah <laughs> i don't get to pick like well these are the really good people let's move those out of the town move the really crappy people in that town and then yeah. let them die and, and there's no one who would be able to to do that so you have to make you have to make those big judgment calls to say like can i save more people by doing something kind of terrible I think you're justified if you make that decision. That doesn't mean you have to. If you choose to, I understand. If you choose not to, I would also understand. Well, I mean, that those are really good points. That some some of those I, I didn't really even consider. So thanks for uh, for bringing that up. What what is really interesting is our response after um, we defeated Japan. And I think that those are things that people kind of forget in in, in Germany too. And various other countries that were involved in uh, in World War Two, and that's something you don't see today, which I'm fucking amazed why we don't see the same sort of response. Is that um, if you look at like Japan and Germany, like we helped them rebuild their countries, like after we 100%. thoroughly fucked them up. Um, so that that gives some kind of not a lighter side, but at least it, it helps, you know, with with yeah. uh, with all the destruction that was done. But when you see the two wars that are going going on right now, there is zero. Fucking probably less than zero of an attempt to really help rebuild uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Like we're, we're still, um, those countries are still fucked up, and we are not taking the same approach. I remember when I left uh, Iraq in two thousand and nine. They had just built a. Um, I was in VBC, the Victory Base Complex, and they, and they built a a bowling alley on the base, right? While, right when I was leaving. 
I was like, oh, that's amazing. That, that's really cool. Like they're building a mil- I was like, this is going to be like the next Germany, like our, our Japan. Like they're just going to start, they're going to build a military base there, you know, keep, keep the American dream going. Yay, democracy. Like, you, you know, you guys can fit in with the rest of the world and not worry about these crazy groups inside your country committing terrorist acts. Let's get our shit together. We'll help you out, rebuild. But I came back, you know, the next, I'm sorry, like a couple years later, I was watching a video on like how we just ripped everything out of Iraq, even where I lived. I left all the shit behind. They didn't help out, help the country out at all. Like, yeah, we helped them out with like the elections, but I'm like, they need more help than just the elections. We're like, we need to help them with infrastructure and like, you know, just to do like basic things. And we're not. Why aren't we doing that? Like, seriously. Like, if you're gonna go to war with somebody, like this is the this is a modern world. You have to help them after you destroyed them, or you should. You should feel obligated. Should and I, and I don't think. And in, in my quick quick review of it, and I don't remember in talking about justification for and then behavior in conflict, I don't feel like he addressed this part of it, which is like, what the hell do you do after? Like, yeah. And that's not a topic that's kind of covered in the, because he's talking about, are you justified for going to war? And then is your behavior in the war, you know, justified? It's It's a really interesting point that, you know, he doesn't cover it and maybe that would be a cool follow on paper or something to write would be like, what, what's justifiable and what's appropriate behavior afterwards. Cause the MacArthur story of like how he worked in Japan is one of my favorite stories of like American history. So he was not a loved character by a lot of people, but then was super loved by a lot of other Americans. Um, you know, the whole story of him like potentially running for president and the conflict between him and FDR was pretty interesting, but he went from the Philippines to Japan because of what happened there. And like, like you said, he stayed in Tokyo. He made sure the businesses got back up and running. He made sure that the first plants that were able to get back up and running were making food. Like you guys need to be able to eat. Like <laughs> you're living on rice right now. Like literally they had nothing left because we had devastated it so bad. And they had, they had also committed themselves in a certain way where like this Island that we took over is for sugar. And this Island that we took over is for this. And as soon as we took those islands back, we're like, wait, crap, we're not building that anywhere else. <laughs> we have no other food other than rice. So they got themselves painted into a pretty tough little corner. And he was like, I'm going to stay. I'll stay out here. I'll be here and I will help you figure out how to get back from it. And we don't, yeah, like I said, maybe we should look back at that and do a little more of that kind of stuff. Well, it's an easy way to like to, to gain new allies. I mean, we, we literally could have had like real allies in Iraq and Afghanistan, but instead we're just, we're playing like this really weird pseudo war, which to me, they're not even at this point, they're not even like really wars. They're just like, we're just there. And I don't understand the reason why. Like, let's just like roll back like our whole current situation with them and just like help them rebuild their countries. Cause they've, for them, their whole country has been at, has been at war for almost 20 years, mm-hmm. you know? And how, how can you possibly repair, um, the confidence you know in america or just in democracy or anything with all those people when you just saw like this this military power come in and fuck your own country up and they're continuing to not really help you i mean so sometimes we do but we're not putting in any real effort as far as i've seen like like i bring up you know japan and, and germany and a few other countries yeah. as well like we put in a concerted effort to help them rebuild and we're, we're not doing it now i think it's a serious um a serious loss on our part. Like, let's just, just fucking help them. So my impression, um, 
And I, I only ever went to Afghanistan. I didn't go to Iraq, but I read some books. <laughs> Doesn't make it the same. But um, is that like most of us did, you know, did good things. And on the Marine side, yeah. On dudes that like most of the community didn't want them there, right? They're like, these guys took over our village. They're raising poppy out there and then like commute, like, like transferring drugs out of the country but like basically kind of oppressing this village and we have find ways to try to be as smart as possible about it and get them out of there. Um, and in, in most cases, um, we were doing stuff like that and most of the people appreciated it. It was like a policing force action. Like we talked about early in Vietnam where like it's, it's mostly policing actions. Like we're trying to help provide security for your society. So you can figure stuff out. That's all we're trying to do. Um, which works sometimes and doesn't work other times. But there were plenty of cases that were really shit, like Milai level shit during both conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan. I wanted to point out one. It was a really, really good read. Um, I know you read a lot too. So the book is called Black Hearts, if you haven't read it already. I have not. Uh, so it is by Jim Frederick. And it covers one platoon's descent into madness in Iraq's Triangle of Death. So they show up for their tour in Iraq. Oh, you said Jim Frederick? Yeah. What's that? Jim Jim Frederick? Yep. Okay, got it. I had three credits, so, yeah. I had three audible credits, credits so there goes two down. I actually pick up my stuff this <laughs> Well, Rhythm of War is ridiculously long, so I'm finally almost done. I just haven't bothered to try to figure out something else to read. Anyways, so they like show up for their tour in this area and the unit that they're replacing, right? So, Hey, here's the security area you have to cover. It's basically this triangle of roads. You have to cover this whole zone. It covers a couple of different little communities. So you have normal checkpoints. They have some company positions, also, but like the unit they're replacing are like, this place is a hellhole. Like we get, we got fucked up. Like we are, we are at like two thirds of the strength. Like a third of our dudes got killed. This is a really, really tough area. People are getting schwacked here. So you need to be tough. Like this is not going to be an easy tour. So they set them up like right from the beginning, like plan on fucking some shit up. And they, so they, they kind of went in hard and a bunch of the, the people did, did some jacked up shit that they probably shouldn't have done. It didn't make the situation any better. So it's an interesting story and like how that, it was, it was a lot to do with mindset and a lot to do with like, I would call it kind of poor leadership for one, but like uninterested leadership, I guess. Like there was a lot of people like, Hey, look at this is the thing that's going on. They're like, ah, that's not really important. We're going to focus on this other thing. It was like, no, this is really a thing that's going on. I was like, yeah, we need to focus on this mission. Like I'm trying to tell you, <laughs> yeah. this is going to get in trouble. Like, nah, it's okay. So it, it's a, it's a, it's a really tough read for dudes. I mean, you're like, I read it. I was like, it just made me like hurt. Like to know that they, it makes sense that they kind of descended into this darkness in their own mind in the situation that they were in, but that we even put them there in that kind of mindset. And that you can look at that as a military person and be like, holy crap, that could have easily been any of us. Yeah. I mean, that's the crazy thing, you know, especially when you're in the Marine Corps, like when, when I see like messed up stuff happen to like certain military members and people are just like, I don't know how that could happen. It's like, I can understand how that'll happen. I can also understand how people get radicalized. I can understand how people are susceptible to brainwashing because, when you talk about, you know, really it's Marine Corps specifically, because I, I can't speak about other branches of the military, but um, there is like, 
they basically brainwash you in boot camp. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, that's, that's the easiest way to put it. Um, how much of that you pick up or put down, you know, it's, it's up to you. Um, but they use, you know, definite psyops on you from the day you start boot camp by like staying up for multiple hours to like yelling at you all the time and all this other fucking shit. Um, and I think that a portion of our military members are still susceptible to suggestion and just kind of going with the flow. So if they see something that's bad, um, but it's done by somebody that, that is in their unit, they are susceptible to being okay with that because that's what they were. I mean, this is like me, like way after I was outside the Marine Corps, when I was thinking about like just the, the certain things that we would say during like marches, I'm sorry, humps or like just running. And there's like really vile shit that we would say and just like, you know, like napalm sticks to kids. It's like, ah, oh, it's funny. Like when I was in, but I was just like, I got out and I was like, wait a minute, that's kind of fucked up. You know, <laughs> like I don't want to see napalm sticking to kids and all this other fucked up shit, but it's all that, all these things that desensitize you to basic humanity that I understand that we needed it on a certain level to like have a, a, a war fighter that is willing to get the job done. But at the same time, I think that we don't, do a good job of like telling them and hey you know this is only for like certain kinds of enemies and you really need to understand like who the fuck the enemy is and it's not mm-hmm. just everybody that is in this certain country or looks at this certain way um but it's a it's a hard line to to walk you know especially when at the time you know and you know the early, early 2000s america was calling for blood you know and people went over there and they they got the blood so yeah but i mean so like a cadence that's like napalm sticks to kids, but is that consequence, you know, proportionally relative to the outcome you were hoping for? Like that doesn't sound like a cadence. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> therefore, it would be justified. You know, it's like it's it's stuff that would have to be covered in like you know, um, in depth with people, but then it just becomes like a click through death by PowerPoint thing that they're not paying attention to anyways, and they're just gonna go out and sing the fun cadence. Well, I mean, um, even well, like when we do um, rules of engagement. Right, I remember yeah. when we did. I did a rules of engagement when I was during Operation Enduring Freedom, and it's basically justifying shooting kids. Yeah. And I was just like, people, yeah. like I'll say that people, somebody is listening to this right now, they're fucking cringing. They're like, you should never, you should never shoot a kid. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll RPG at you or your troops, and they're going to potentially kill you, and you know that they have every ability to do so. Yeah, so there are there are ways you can justify killing a kid, but it gets to the level. It's like. Why am I in a situation to where I need to kill a kid? Like, what fucking... How many layers of humanity has been totally messed up? Yeah, to, like, have this kid in a situation to where he feels like he needs to kill a person or anybody with superior numbers and superior firepower. You know what I mean? But they're going to put this kid on the line to try and kill me. And uh, there's... So that's a part in the in the just the just in Bellum part where they talk about like because we just we just create these two groups combatants and non-combatants right and like it's okay at any time to kill a combatant as long as you qualify them as combatant it's okay it's like but like you said in that example like even our guys there in the trucks if the if the people there see us as an invading force say for example like why are these people invading my country are they even justified in killing our guys just because they're attacking them because we're driving some trucks through a town and in that same example is any of our troops actually justified to just kill someone else because they present a threat of death to us too 
And in most cases, you know, the, the arguments go towards yes, because you are there as a combatant willing to potentially kill other people. Those people are willing to kill you too. It's justifiable as you do so. And then it, then it just becomes a kind of gray area as to how much combat, non-combatant damage are we willing to accept during that fight. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's so messy. So I hope that this whole, you know, conversation that we just had the back and forth, if you're a civilian, I hope that this really opens your eyes to like parts of the military that you probably didn't know about. Um, yeah. And it's just don't go ahead. How's it? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's, it's, these are decisions that people have to make on a daily basis um, in any war, really. But I think that most yeah. people don't seem to understand, especially here in America, because we are so far removed from any sort of war if you live in America and we're sending troops overseas. And that that's one of the things that is, is kind of bothersome when it comes to like post-traumatic stress is that at least for me, like when I, you know, I was living overseas, you know, in Iraq and then I came back and it was like nothing happened. And like that messed me up. I was just like, what? Like people are dying over there. Like I saw these horrific events and I can still go to In-N-Out here in america you know and just like it's all good and like being in crowds like i, I remember when i first came back i was having fucking panic attacks i was like these are too many people like why are there people in like in these small enclosed places there's too many of you yeah that's a, that's a pretty common one and i think you know it's fixed by covid so that's good <laughs> yeah um, i don't go anywhere anymore <laughs> well actually it was probably even worse <laughs> it's that problem but like, um, I think it was something you said earlier, and I, I can't believe we haven't gotten back to that at this point until this point. But like, we haven't had an invasion, um, you know, in the United States since, or basically, actual war conflict since the Civil War. Um, so it's like, why are we still having these fights in other countries? And like, putting on my tinfoil hat, like you said, and being crazy about it, it's like, if you keep the fight over there, somewhere else, that's where they'll go to fight us and won't come here so there's 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 lots of like articles written about like is that what's really going on um and obviously i have no insight into that i'm <laughs> definitely not at those kinds of levels um and i just think that there's definitely an under like i read these articles i'm like i could understand how that could be a thing like it makes sense to like try to have them come fight us somewhere where we're not messing with our society well I'll tell you, I have a unique experience from like a lot of people because I've obviously been on the you know active Marine side, but I've also been a military contractor. Yep. And, and so to me, I think that the, the main reason why is because it, it is easier for these defense contracting companies to exchange money through tax dollars from Americans. Um, obviously, um, if you had to deal with the horrific tragedy of war on American soil, Americans are not going to stomach that like at all, but they're not going to stomach that. But if you keep like, there's no way you would have a war in America that lasted more than like a couple of years. Like a year would be like a lot. It'd be a long fucking time. Um, but when you do it in another country that, you know, you don't really care about, um, you can keep pumping in these tax dollars into these, uh, defense contracting companies and they just keep you know that for them it's it's all about the money it's like when, when the war first started people are like oh we're going to war for oil no it's not the war for oil that is not the the main revenue stream um from america like going to these going to these wars it's the 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 money comes from it's little shit like um having uh people 
that are in war zone no longer being cooks. Like we have, we contract out our cooks. We contract out the buildings of all the buildings. We contract out all the IT people, which is me. I was an IT guy when I when I was a contractor. We contract out um, basic security on bases. We contract out everything, and these are to the tunes of billions, if not trillions, of dollars to these industries. I mean, I I, I don't know if I told you, but. When I was overseas as a storage area network guy, the first year I went there, I got paid a uh, quarter of a million dollars a year to stay to be there, and they paid uh, anywhere between 1.4 and 1.6 million dollars just for me, a single person. That's how much the DoD had to shell out just for one person. It is a job that I could have done if I was trained to do it in the Marine Corps. Easily, I could have done the Marine Corps as a Marine, getting paid way less money. But the fact <laughs> is, that there's this there's this weird pipeline, especially with IT, which is why I'm surprised that somebody as intelligent as you is i'm not this is going to sound like a backhand compliment i'm sorry as i was saying it it's going to seem very rude but i'll say it anyway just because people understand if you're intelligent and you're in the military and you're in, in if you know anything about it it's like why why would you stay in there's literally very little to no incentive for you to stay in um because you can get paid easily five times more or at least three to five times more outside of the, the marine corps um, because they, I don't think the Marine Corps or the military in general really values the amount of, um, the amount of worth that, it, that you have for knowing these skills. Um, and people just, they don't really seem to get that. It's like, these are very valuable skills that we need to remove these, these civilian and co- uh, corporate contracts from the military. I think it would do a lot better for the military in general, because you would just eliminate that and you would have people, and also... To be honest with you, I don't know if you heard this concept before, but I don't know why everybody in the military gets paid the same amount of money. Yeah, it's, it's, I've, I've written a couple things advocating to change that. But yeah. It's so stupid. Like you, you told me that a cook gets paid the same as like a like a network IT guy. Like it doesn't make any sense to me at all. Right. I mean, unless you're a goddamn chef. Yeah, if you're a chef, maybe you should pay the same amount of money. But you better be a goddamn good chef. You know. Yeah. Well, and we do this thing too, and we, we are going a little bit into a rabbit hole, but we do this thing too, where like when you get promoted so that you can get paid more, um, you go into leadership positions, right? Not towards more skilled positions. So the cook who gets promoted to staff sergeant because he's been cooking really well and is probably what you would qualify as like a chef now, like you could really do some really good cooking things because maybe he really focused on this culinary arts stuff or there. No, he just manages the freaking staff at a chow hall now. Like he doesn't get to still cook anymore. Like he's no longer getting to actually use his skills. And so to me, like there's, there are people who just wanted to do the job, you know? Yeah. And I always use mechanics as the example, because there's motor T dudes out there and chicks out there that all they wanted to do is work on a truck. Like I want to go to the shop and change oil, change the tires, take these lug nuts off, get greasy, fix this freaking truck up, get it back out on the line and keep going. But as soon as I'm in for four years, I'm a corporal now, I'm a sergeant now, like I can't actually go rent on the truck anymore. I just need to manage the schedule and make sure all the maintenance records are done. And like, there are a lot of people who do not want to do that. That's not what they want to do. They just want to work on the truck. And we have no system to say like, you can stay as a Lance Corporal, but be like a step 12 Lance Corporal who's been in for 12 years and is the best freaking mechanic we've got. And you get paid more because you are the best at just doing that job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sort of this, in the corporate world. It's, it's like, that's why a lot of people go to like management because they don't, 
most of them don't have the skills to do it's it's almost the opposite of like the military you know it's like people don't they know they don't have the skills to do like the actual job so they just decide to manage people but in the in well, the military they're kind of forced into just doing management yeah i would say don't think that people don't work towards only doing management stuff here too oh yeah yeah uh, definitely some of them and some of them they would not survive in the corporate world you know what i mean so that's why they that's why they stay in but and that's why I think your your argument towards like if you are not one of those people who is like eking by and moving into these leadership positions to not have to have your skill. So if you are someone in those higher positions and you're smart and have the skill, like why are you still doing that? Isn't, isn't a new concept. I definitely, definitely have been told a few times, like, why are you still in? Um, and for me, a big part of it was, so I was about to retire. Um, and I decided to take this job specifically because, um, a couple of factors, obviously, but one of the big ones that worked out well for me to be able to explain it and sell it to the family was that like, I have a chance here to train and imp or like really make a change in how we train people and make them skilled and what it is that we teach. And I was hoping to be able to really, you know, make a big difference. But... No, that's, a, that's actually what I was going to, that's what I was thinking too, is that you're actually in a position now that you can possibly make some change, whether or not you can do it, I guess you'll find out, but um, it's, it will be difficult. It's a big bureaucracy wall that I'm trying to scale. So. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that you're, you're doing it for the right reasons. I mean, cause there's, there's obviously issues that, you know, we both see that the, the military in general has mm -hmm. um, that they need to be resolved before, you know, we are opened up to our enemies, you know, which is happening now. So, so on that note, do you want to do a whole episode on kill chain? Yeah, yeah, we can because that, that was a great book. I, I really yeah. enjoyed it. I'll have to listen to it again. Later. So, what's up? That might be just straight up talking about it, not necessarily a one versus like one talking more about it to the other. But um, I, I just I wrote it down as we hit some topics earlier. I was like, ooh, that would be fun to do. Would be fun, especially because you know I can talk about it from like the the more civilian side now. But yeah. it's uh, yeah, there's like a lot of issues that I saw in the military in general. You know, when I was getting out, I was just like, this shit ain't for me. You know, yeah. I mean, only because, like, it'd be really cool if I could have stayed in for longer. Because I, I thought about it for a long time. I mean, even even after I got out, I almost went back into the military because I was like, you know what? The corporate world. I was like, this is nonsense. <laughs> but I uh, I figured it out. And, yeah, I mean, there's, there's problems there that that book uh, brings up a lot of issues that and a lot of resolutions that I think are very valid that need to be implemented today if not 10 years ago so totally agree and and actually it was funny because um had a meeting on friday last week not today uh with our battalion commander or whatever and i mentioned it i was like have you read kill chain yet it's like no i'm like you need to read this book <laughs> like <laughs> you absolutely need to read the book it will change how you look at what it is that we're doing right now and especially for guys like him and me like we're talking about a lieutenant colonel and we're talking about a chief officer for like we maybe have potentially now finally enough clout to like hopefully talk to people about making changes like this so i hope anyways that's what i'm betting on right that'd be good you're you're uh, a better person than me because <laughs> you know I've some been... of it's by accident some of it's by accident no i mean just you're still you're doing it you know like yeah i've been with my company um i work for one of the largest tech companies in the world i've been with them for 10 years now and I have zero 
zero uh, want to go in the management side or even just like to go up to like a different level because I just I don't like corporate nonsense. I don't like managing people. I don't like um, I like doing my own shit and fixing problems. Um, and I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that a person should continue to be able to get paid more as they get better and better at that particular level and not have to move out of it in order to get paid more. It just makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, if I thought that I could make a difference, I might do it, but I still, I like doing the, I like doing the nerd shit. I like doing the nerd shit. (laughs) I try to be both, which is really hard. Well, no, I mean, you're one of the most nerdy. You're probably the nerdiest Marine. (laughs) I think probably than myself, but I'm not active anymore. So I don't, I don't count anymore. Yeah. You know, there's um, a big Jedi poster on the wall and yeah. Lego. It's pretty nerdy. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, that's why we get along so well, you know. Um, it, it's just crazy that we met a couple months ago. Yeah. And we're uh, we're doing this podcast. It's This is a fun podcast. Every single time we do these, I, I hype them up, and then people are just like, oh, I want to listen to them now. I'm like, all right. Well, we're going we're gonna to release them soon, all right? I just – we need to have a, a schedule. But I think we're – we hashed that out, so. Yeah, we're there. Yeah. Uh, Enrique's jealous, by the way. Is he really? We should have yeah. him on to talk about so his jealousy. Like, like we both left him for each other. <laughs> DJ <laughs> DJ Exceed. You ever, you ever saw him DJ before? No, no. Oh, back when I knew him, he was fucking good. Like he was really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he puts all that same effort into CrossFit stuff now. I think so. he's crazy. He's CrossFit everything. It's it's crazy to me. That's and good. it's not CrossFit. It's functional fitness. But... Well, I mean. He's wearing his Reebok Nanos. <laughs> yeah. Well, and so I've been doing video production stuff for him lately too. So like we have to be very careful because he does have some CrossFit stuff in his workout space yeah. and where we go record. And like you can't linger on like a CrossFit logo. Like maybe it's endorsing your video. Oh, yeah. So like, like it could be like, Look at this passing shot, and there was a CrossFit thing in it. Because I'm trying to show something else. I'm like, you want me to like not capture this in the shot? Like, but you have this thing right here. It's like, just don't linger on it. Oh, jeez, this is ridiculous. That's hilarious. Well, you know, it's funny. Fit. What, what's crazy? So I do like my functional fitness is like with like non-conventional shit. Like I do like kettlebells and stone maces and shit like that. Um, but all my stuff is like mainly from on it. But I have like an inside track with them, so if I want to do like start making videos, I could just like be like, "Hey, can I put your guys' stuff?" They wouldn't mind anyway because it's, it's free publicity. All the crossover will care either. I think their perspective on it now is their name is so big that now it's the other way around where they're getting you traction because you're using. Oh, the name. all right. Yeah, that's so, interesting. Yeah, I do some unconventional stuff too. So I do a lot of like I have um two training two training swords that are like gladiuses that are like heavy plastic and do a lot of like arm work the, training the, the jack off motion in the sky you're doing the i'm just kidding no but <laughs> no i got you no it, that's you cool we talked about that right you'd watch the expanse before yeah yeah so i just watched uh i'm trying to get finished with i'm it, not caught up yeah so there's an episode where one of the characters like gets their fingers shot off okay and then they like it, they have a regrowth capability apparently yeah. in this far in the future to like put their hand in this thing it gets all locked in and then like has to sit there obviously for like hours while it regrows your freaking fingers so he finally gets up out of the chair he's coming back out he's like ah. like the pilot walking past him he's like oh your hand's looking pretty good he's like yeah 
Let me go test it out real quick. <laughs> like, oh, yeah you know what um i've actually had two members two people two actors on the show on, my, on the podcast i think you mentioned something about it it's a good show yeah it's a good show you know what's funny this is hilarious cass anvar who was the the pilot well, he was on the podcast and then we met him in person at at like WonderCon like years back mm. and we were like can we get a picture with you and then he made us pay for it. I was like, dude, you're on our podcast. Like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> Alex. Alex. Yeah, yeah, Alex. Yeah. But we paid for it. I was like, whatever. Get your money. Yeah. I've been watching those episodes, and I noticed the first name that pops up in the post credits. Uh, I got to talk to my CO because I think they might be related. I was like, oh, really? that's not a normal name. Huh. It's a really weird name, so. You'll notice that if you go back and watch an episode, like the very first name that pops up, I'm like, that's not a normal person's last name. So I was like, they got to be related somehow. Well, I, I haven't watched since they went to Amazon Prime, which is crazy because on Amazon, I get everything from Amazon um, on basically press release. So I get them like a month early mm. and I can, well, sometimes even more than that. So I can do like reviews, but I haven't done any reviews. I just watch them. Um, I haven't watched it since they did the the changeover, so, but I, I'm further along in the books than I am with the show, so. Yeah, their, their physics, their use of physics and space mechanics stuff is really really good. I saw I caught a I caught a mistake the other day, but it was not a big deal. Well, I mean, they def, they definitely do their their research. This is in a time when there's no inertial dampeners, you know, or shields. Really, it's it's really cool to watch the way that they kind of do like our version our like current understanding of science works yep. in space i think it's it's neat uh so we we definitely went a little sideways there but uh i don't think there's anything i need to cover in order to go to the rest of basically the just justification stuff for war uh i thought about and i had a third down in case we couldn't find enough to talk about to talk about dave grossman and the like the on combat the the sheep, the wolf, and the sheepdog sheep, thing, because yeah. that kind of ties into it, um, and that could be a subject for later. I don't think it needs to go into this because it, it ties in, but I felt like it was a it was I had it down as a gap filler in case, but I figured maybe we want to talk about it later. No, we, I mean I think we we have enough. But I mean we have I think we talked about my my honest thoughts on on Dave Grossman because when I first heard mm -hmm. about the the sheep, the the wolf, and the sheepdog concept, uh, yeah, that's a that's a great concept. But then when I when I saw him doing, you know, warrior trainings for police officers, I was just like, can you not do that? Like police officers should never be considered warriors. You don't go to war. You, if you, if you think you're going to war as a police officer, then I think that you've, you have a basic failure, failure in understanding on your job as protecting and serving. Cause that should be your number I mean, one. Unless you fully understand that your job is a war against the poor. Yeah, I mean, if you, I mean, some of them probably that's might be what their mindset is because that's, that's what a lot of them do, you know. Um, dark here a little, sorry. No, it's I'm glad you said it, you know, so that people don't think it's just me or really against the police. But I, I have friends that are, you know, uh, both sheriffs and in general law enforcement, police officers, whatever. I have multiple friends yeah. in law enforcement. I'm just like, the system is the problem. It's not them. It's it's the system that allows them to do 
and their departments to do these certain things. And it's probably not something that they can change, but it's something that our, our society needs to, needs to demand better of them because the system needs to change. So, so in a conversation where we talk about words mean things specifically towards justification for war to, to describe what it is that they're supposed to do as war is wrong. Right? Yeah. There's no, there's should not be a concept that occurs within, especially we're talking cities generally, right? Or like an individual city police force, like internal to your city that can be justified as a war, right? We talked already about like justification for war on drugs, not a thing. And then it's, it's frustrating to think that they think that way, but it's like, what are you at war for? What is the justification for this war that you think you're going to? So it, there are places and there are reasons that war is justified. And we kind of covered a lot of those today, but I just don't think that there's, I haven't seen any good case studies or like presentations to me. And it, maybe I just haven't done enough research that shows how, what the police are doing and what war is are anywhere near the same thing. Yeah, no, me either. And I've done a lot of research recently, especially most of last year, just going over um, civil rights issues and policing in America and the mil the ongoing militarization of, of the police forces in America. And it's just like, why are we doing this? But it comes to the same, it's the same thing about money. And it's, it's the same kind of money. It's because a lot of the police forces in America, they're getting uh, militarized, I mean, from military contracts. Like they're literally getting the hand-me-downs from the DOD. And I'm like, why do you need a tank? Why do you need a grenade launcher? Why do you need a sniper rifle? I mean, a sniper rifle, maybe. I can get I can get down with a sniper rifle. But like other shit, it's like, you don't need a 50 caliber, you know? You don't need a tank. You don't need any of that kind of stuff. And they just, they don't get it. When you said like they get the, the leftover stuff, like I immediately went to the Marines are always told like you get whatever's left over from the army. Like we get it after them. Yeah, like we we get the leftovers. So it's like, so then are they the ones who get our leftovers? Yeah. Then it goes to police force. They get the worst of the worst. No, they're getting. They're still getting. They say like hand me downs, but it's really, they're still really new stuff. Yeah. It's like how are you getting a um? What was that? Why do you need an MRAP in America? Like. What are, are the are the streets now filled with fucking landmines in America? No. <laughs> That's what it's built for. And I think we said it before too. Like the Mat V, the smaller version, the four door, like small truck. That thing is awesome looking. But yeah, I don't need to drive on the streets. Yeah, no, no, it's just it's dumb. But anyway, uh, so I'm done uh, with the points I kind of wanted to talk about specifically to just and unjust wars by Michael Walter. Did you want to have? Did you have any other questions, or do you want to cover anything else? No, no, I think I'm good. It was a it was a good conversation. We kind of went off the rails like like we normally do. I mean, you listen to the yeah. last couple of podcasts, you get it. Go off the rails a little this bit. Is where we go. Yeah, um, I like the conversation. Um, I think we covered. Yeah, I think we covered it. If, okay. And if for the audience, if you have, if you want us to go more in depth, maybe we went off the rails on a subject to where you wanted us to get more in depth for. Um, definitely hit us up, and we will. We can revisit. We, maybe at the end, when we do like a season finale, we'll just do a finale on just like how we can answer your questions. Yeah, answer your questions and wrap shit up. So yeah. All right. I uh, look forward to 
our next conversation. I think that means so you're going to drive the next one, right? Yes, yes, I am. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks everybody for hanging out with us. Appreciate it. We're out of here. <laughs> they do not. They do not. But it's, it's always the kind of, like the junior guys that are like, yeah, because because they want to be tough. You're like, yeah, but you aren't going to live if you don't have us. Yeah, for real. Just like I, you know, if we got into an actual firefight, like my my likelihood of survival without the grunts super fucking low <laughs> you know what i mean i mean don't get me wrong I, I can do like basic squad tactics and like i know how to shoot but it's like when it comes to like boots on the ground like a fucking large girl war I, I, i'm not the guy you know i'm not the guy you want i mean i can do it but you guys are definitely better well trained for that warfare is definitely a team sport yeah <laughs> that's a fun okay. anyway so i think that's a really really good segue yeah, so let's uh let's get into our work here is a team sport. Yes, it is a team sport.